Hello, this is John Faithful Hamer on the Likeville podcast. Today I'm going to be talking with Daniel Weinstock. He's a philosopher, professor in the McGill Law School. He has a lot of interest in you know what it means to be a public intellectual. We talk about politics, we end up talking about veganism, all sorts of things. So I had a great deal of a very good time talking with him, and I'm sure you'll have a good time listening to it. Please be sure to like and comment on the podcast on iTunes. Thank you. Bye. Welcome to the Likeville podcast. This is John Faithful Hamer, and today I'll be talking with Professor Daniel Weinstock, who's a philosopher who teaches in the McGill Law School. Uh, welcome, Daniel. <laughs> happy to be here. Uh, well, I'm, I'm glad you're happy to be here because it's, uh, it's not a very happy time in the world to be a liberal. It's uh, when I first met you, we were at the end of history and liberal democracies were on the rise everywhere. Uh, now, yesterday, Putin was Another reelected, um, you know, in quotation marks. And we've got Trump in the States and we've got right. It's happening. So what what is going on? Why do you think there's been this turnaround away from away from pluralism, away from liberalism, away from uh, towards much more authoritarian uh, systems yeah. of government, much more kind of a resurgence of ethnic nationalism, and yeah, what's going on? Well, you know, I I, I shy away from the one shot sort of big explanations, right? I think that there are a lot of things that have um, that have that have converged uh, to create this moment in history. Um, one of them has been talked about a lot, you know, and I think it's it is part of the truth. Uh, I think we would be uh, it would be wrong to ignore it, which is the idea that um, you know a, there's a kind of a conjuries of um, financial and industrial globalization that has left a lot of people in the lurch. Um, there's also a kind of a global discourse, you know, of uh, the urban elites uh, who have more in common with one another than they do with people in their own nation states, you know. And I think that this is something that uh, I certainly experience. I'm traveling t the day after tomorrow to Amsterdam, and, uh, you know, I'll be sitting in a cafe, which will probably look just like the cafe down the street here, uh, <laughs> looking at, uh, you know, sort of hipsters reading more or less the same books and magazines as I am. Wearing the same clothes. With whom I could yeah. probably join in a conversation without, without you know, missing a beat, mm -hmm. uh, whereas 100 kilometers out of the city, I probably have a hard time. Um, you know, communicating effectively uh, with people who are experiencing uh, other things. So I think that that's part of the story. I've been thinking a lot these days, um, though, about some more micro kind of stories. Um, I'm a big, big believer in um, unintended consequences, basically, you know, the best laid plans uh, and all of that. Things just go awry. Tragic view of history, yeah. And sometimes things go awry because of uh, things that people tried to do that were actually kind of good things. And, you know, there's the oops, I wish I'd seen that coming kind of moment. Um, I've been thinking a lot lately about political parties and about the role that political parties have played in keeping liberal democ democracies aloft by performing a fairly, I'm just going to say it, kind of an elitist role. Uh, you know, they're po political. And, and when I say elitist, I don't mean elitist in the sense of only the educated or something like that. But I think that there uh, was a time in our history, uh, I wouldn't want to date it with precision, where political parties were basically uh, basically run by insiders, uh, people who were party activists, people who were party uh, operatives. Um, and they made the decisions about how the political parties would comport themselves in government. They would choose their leader. Right. Mm -hmm. The idea that a party membership could choose a leader against the will of the party. Right. is something that 
even only 20 years ago probably wouldn't make sense. We were both old enough to remember yeah. the way that uh, leaders used to get picked, oh, yeah, right? Absolutely. Uh, delegates in, in uh, who were fairly insiderish as well. You know, you'd actually have to go to a place in order to vote for somebody who would then go represent you uh, in a um, in a in a smoke filled uh, you know auditorium or something where there would be actual on the floor and backroom horse trading and dealing. You know, somebody would walk over to the other side of the hall in order to pledge the support of their delegates to uh, you know another another person. I think the last time we saw that in Canadian politics was probably but nine uh, times out of ten. This had a, a very moderating influence because very, th- that's they, right. it was a big tent approach. That's right, and they exactly. were looking for somebody that would be so extremists of any kind were marginalized. Exactly. And it, it, right? might, it might sometimes give rise to surprises. I think the last time we saw this in, in Canadian politics was with the election of Stéphane Dion to the leadership mm-hmm. of the Liberal Party, where, uh, you know, in order to avoid Michael Ignatieff getting in, I think it was, a, I can't remember, Bob Ray or somebody walked over to Stéphane Dion, who I think had started polling fifth or something amongst the yeah. amongst the hopefuls. But, um, but the basic idea is that um, people who vote for the leader have a stake in the party actually performing well. Uh, they have been through a lot of discussions with uh, people who are roughly like-minded, although a big tent party is one that encompasses uh, a lot. At some point, and the internet was obviously one of the ways in which uh, this changed, party um, party membership became something that, first of all, you sold, right, when you were an aspirant to uh, uh, either a riding association or, or the leadership. You had to sell 10,000, 20,000 uh, memberships, right, uh, almost as your entry card into the race. Wow. And um, party memberships become nothing more than a kind of a like on Facebook, Uh <laughs> Right, it's ten bucks to be, to join the to join the Progressive Conservative Party of Ontario. Uh, I have friends in Ontario who are who are NDPers who joined the uh, the Progressive Conservatives in order to well. I have no some who voted for uh, uh, Mrs. Elliott in order Ms. Elliott in order to have a reasonable person there in mm-hmm. case the Conservatives won. I know people I, like that. Too, I know yeah. people who voted for Doug Ford, thinking, well, if we vote for Doug Ford, we'll make the Conservatives unelectable. But the idea that you could put down ten dollars on your PayPal uh, and join a political party and get to participate in the most momentous decision that that political party has to make, which is who will be the leader, has turned political parties from something. Um, which was of the form that I described, into an engine for populism, quite frankly, right? Where somebody could appeal to uh, the electorate above the party sort of apparatus, heap contempt on the party apparatus, as Trump did with the Republicans, and basically get, uh, you know, um, hundreds of thousands upon millions of people uh, to vote for them. So I think that we have not appreciated the bulwark uh, that political parties represent in keeping this liberal democratic thing aloft and and keeping it from shading into the kind of populism that we're seeing today. Yeah, now that's interesting because there's, um, I think it's Michael Holt, the political scientist, he has this argue the, uh, the collapse of politics in the 1850s and he says that <clears throat> the American Civil War, uh, he, he doesn't take it quite this far, but he says the American Civil War probably could have been prevented they could have gotten rid of slavery peacefully that what happened was the big political parties the Whig party and the democratic party they were parties that ran in the north and the south and so this had a moderating effect on both parties they would marginalize anti-slavery activists on the one side and fire eaters on the other side and that this you know kept kept the peace but when you had the breakdown of the big uh, political parties the Whigs then you had the emergence of the Republican Party, and the Republican Party was able to 
elect Abraham Lincoln without even running anybody in the South. You right. know? And so imagine if, uh, if a, you know, I, I try and imagine these scary what if scenarios. Imagine if Harper didn't try to learn French and speak French and didn't make attempt to sort of run people in Quebec and show Quebec, hey, I'm actually going to come and, you know, I'm going to talk to you. I'm going to talk to you in French. Imagine if Trudeau did not immediately reach out to Alberta and say, I know you didn't vote for me, but I'm going to be your prime minister and I'm going to try really hard to defend your inch. I'm your prime minister too. Right. Imagine if you had, you know, in either of those scenarios, you could have a very powerful separatist movement immediately overnight because, and that's exactly what he says, this is what happened in the uh, in the United States in the 1850s with the election of Abraham Lincoln. The South realized they can put somebody in control of the federal power without even paying attention to us. Well, that's right. This is happening all over the place well, now. And, and it's, and it's a, it's a Winner very, takes all politics, right? It's a very fine thing, you know, um, and, and there are details of the way in which our political system is organized that keep that hanging by a thread that people all, some, sometimes don't attend to. I mean, Harper, you're right. Harper, uh, you know, the, the, the desire to uh, produce a kind of a national story, a national picture, not a sort of, you know, the hell with Quebec picture, but a picture where Quebec could be encompassed was something that probably moderated uh, him to some degree, brought him towards the center, both in terms of his politics and his uh, sort of regional politics as well. But one of the things that we do in Canada, and, uh, you know, I haven't done the math, uh, but it'd be interesting to look at this. We, um, we give a lot of weight to non-urban ridings. You and I live in ridings that are probably underrepresented by a factor of about two and a half oh, yeah. to one relative to uh, rural uh, ridings. Yeah. Um, and and that's, a, that's a feature rather than a bug in, in a sense in our system, according to some, because as Canada urbanizes as rapidly as it does, we don't want regions, we don't want outlying uh, areas to fall into a vicious spiral of losing representation as they lose population share. Uh, and so we over-represent them. We have ridings, uh, in northern Quebec, in northern Ontario, uh, all over the place, um, that are much less populous by a, by a pretty considerable factor, uh, much less populous than our urban ridings in Montreal or Toronto or, or Vancouver. Now, um, you know, this is part of the story as well, the, the story that we're telling here. I think it, it'd be um, crazy not to, not to recognize it, a city versus non-city kind of uh, phenomenon. There is a growing cultural gap, I think, all over the world. Uh, if you look at the electoral maps that brought in Harper in the last couple of elections, the electoral map that brought in um, Trump, certainly, uh, in Europe, uh, you know, if you look at uh, the way the big cities are voting and the way that the uh, non-cities are voting, the uh, suburban and rural areas, we're really getting two political cultures. Now, we have to attend to that, right? We have to attend to that as we, for reasons, and again, this is the unintended consequence thing. This is, uh, you know, oops, I wish I'd seen this uh, <laughs> when I did this thing for these other good reasons. To the extent that non-city writings are uh, perhaps a little bit more prone to accepting a kind of a populist message, uh, and to the extent that we give them the kind of representation that we uh, that they have in, in in Canada right now, we may see somebody, a Doug Ford, perhaps, uh, you know, um, uh, making the calculation that hey. I don't have to have a national story, right? I can actually, you know, my, my people have crunched the numbers and we can actually get a working parliamentary majority of ridings uh, just by, um, you know, catering to uh, 
writings that have been overrepresented for reasons, again, which are entirely understandable and, and to some degree even laudable. Um, so I, I think it really hangs by a thread. And, and the, po the point that I made at the very beginning of our conversation, which is that very often these things are not meta-narrative things. They're like little institutional details that we don't really attend to and that we really don't notice that either serve as a kind of a, a, break, a break to the floodwaters or the don't, you know, the 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 water the, the the floodwaters are the thing that we look at, but the things that e that either keeps the floodwaters from um, you know uh, drowning us or not are often just little structural features of our political systems that we sometimes don't attend to enough. Okay, and another question I want to ask, which is ties into this a great deal, is that one thing a debate that's happened in Plata Montreal a great deal among like Quebec Solidaire people and right there's a lot of a lot of the argument is that you shouldn't necessarily see all of this ethnic nationalism and this as being uniformly a right-wing phenomenon. They say that, in fact, in order to get a certain critical mass of support for the welfare state and for traditionally left-wing, you have to have a feeling that there's a community. You have to sort of... to The more diverse a political community becomes, the more multicultural it is, people don't feel necessarily... Um, all the time like they are they don't see themselves in their neighbor and so in a place that like Finland that is very very um, ethnically homogeneous there it's no surprise that you have huge amount of support for a generous welfare state and also for a criminal justice system that is not overly uh, punitive and you know great whereas in places like the United States where you have a much more diverse population where the urban people don't see themselves in rural people and vice versa, where you have uh, racial divisions and things like that, that surprise, surprise, you have support for really harsh uh, criminal justice system and then also for not very much support for a social welfare state. So there are people here and elsewhere who say, if you actually want to achieve left-wing goals, have a more kind of socialist society, you should actually be okay with assimilation and you should be okay with maybe tightening up borders a little bit more what do you say because it, it that seems to me like two things that are very close to your heart yeah that could potentially be at cross purposes pull apart yeah so i'll say two things uh the first thing i'd say is that uh you know the numbers are actually so will kimlicka and keith banting uh will kimlicka who's obviously highly invested he's you know a canadian political philosopher who has written you know, probably the most influentially about uh multiculturalism and about how you know a liberal democrat almost by definition, should be a multiculturalist. Um, he and Keith Banting, who's a real number-crunching political scientist at Queen's, have actually been doing international work, trying to see if that equation holds good, right? The more uh, cohesive, the more ethnically uh, homogenous a society is, the more support there is for the welfare state. And unsurprisingly, the numbers are... They don't tell the opposite story, but they don't tell that story quite as uh, cleanly and univocally as, as, as one might have thought. But the other thing I'd say, and this is where, you know, I, 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 looking at the way in which the numbers get crunched is far beyond my, uh, my expertise. Um, but the one thing I would say is that the, the, the worry that I would say that um, community is not uh, what you might call an independent variable. In other words, communities don't just happen. Uh, they get created or they get destroyed, uh, often by deliberate political um, political dis discourse. So, um, you know, the story of the Canadian welfare state is one, uh, you know, that, that, that was 
that that got into place where when we when we already had quite a bit of immigration. My parents uh, came to uh, uh, Jews from Eastern Europe came to this country from uh, from Eastern Europe, and um, you know the story there was that within a generation the immigrant would hit the uh, the national mean, right? Um, so uh, and and you know I can't remember growing up. Obviously, there was the French English thing in Canada, uh, but the immigration story was largely uh, a happy story. So I think that political but they had a different model i mean but that you take like for instance the guy who coined the word organic like we think organic foods was uh, at j.i rodale he started prevention magazine and organic farming and gardening he uh, came over and he was originally jerome cohen and he changed his name to make it sound more english Jer- sure. jerome rodale and this was so the common thing for people coming from elsewhere was to not only learn the predominant language, so you move to Quebec, you learn French, you move to the States, you learn English, but also to try as much as possible to, you know, fly the flag and right. be a member of the team. And so I think the the argument that that I hear very, very often here in the plateau is people say, well, you know, why don't we go back to that? That worked much better than this whole, we want you to stay you know, yeah. exactly the way you are and don't assimilate. And- so I think, I think that there's a, there's a tendency to exaggerate the degree to which we actually have uh, moved away from that uh, model. I think immigrants, by and large, recognize, realize, and appreciate that coming to a new country uh, means all those things, right? I mean, if you look at the success of Bill 101 in creating a fairly homogenous linguistic uh, community, you know, walk out, just out the out the door of this building, and you'll see kids from all over the world speaking French with a Quebecois accent, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, so, and you know, my 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 kids played hockey for for years. Hockey, one of the great national uh, uh, nation building institutions, and um, you know, <laughs> my we we I met more people from a greater range of uh, ethnocultural backgrounds by being a hockey dad probably than being an academic, quite frankly. Um, and so, you know, the, the the thing that's happening is that we, and when I say we here, I mean the sort of majority, the, uh, the, the media that represent the majority, um, have trained their radar elsewhere. In other words, they have... Uh, they have, they, rather than focusing on the 90% of people's uh, experiences, which are experiences of integration uh, into the main institutions, political institutions, cultural institutions, sporting institutions, they have focused their attention on the 10%. Now, those numbers mean nothing. I just made those up uh, for the sake of the exercise. Uh, whereas, the, uh, where, through which they've been saying, well, we also want to uh, maintain some of our cultural distinctiveness uh, as well. So um, I think that uh, you know, the story may not be as different from the 1950s to today as, as, as we think it is. I mean, when I was very, very involved in the charter, debates over the Charter of Values and the Taylor-Bouchard-Taylor... Yeah, I, I wanted to get to that, yeah. <laughs> the Bouchard-Taylor Commission, our, our melodrama here in Quebec for going on Can about... Can you just briefly recount what that drama was? Because I definitely want to talk well, about Well, so, so uh, you know, I think... Um, well, I'll, I'll, my, my chronology of it starts with a Supreme Court decision um, called uh, Multani, yeah. uh, which was a Supreme Court decision based here in Canada where a young Sikh boy uh, came to school wearing, had been coming to school forever, really, uh, wearing a kirpan, which is a small ritual dagger that uh, many Sikh men uh, wear. Um, never been noticed because it was under his clothing. I think he'd been playing in the schoolyard and it fell out. And one of the school teachers, in ways that I can totally understand, said, you know, Hey, uh, you know, you can't come to school with a knife. Um, and uh, so it's a long and interesting story, but the case ultimately made it up to the Supreme Court of Canada, who in a 9 nothing decision said, well, look, 
you know, um, we have seen Sikh boys with wearing uh, kirpans uh, all over the country. There's never been an incident. If there were a real security concern, it would have come up at some point. There doesn't seem to be. Kids are coming into schools with baseball bats and hockey sticks with which they can do themselves any manner of, of, uh, sure. of harm if they choose to. Um, so it was a 9 nothing decision of the Supreme Court of Canada saying that um, the accommodation that had been reached by the school after this incident, which was that the boy could keep on coming to school with his kirpan on condition that he wore it very tightly sheathed underneath his clothing, was fine. Um, so this was met with a collective shrug of the shoulders in the rest of Canada, not because English Canadians are more virtuous, I think, but just because there's a larger Sikh community, especially in Ontario, where, uh, you know, there's this significant Sikh community. Um, and in Quebec, it led in some of the media to a, um, Canadian multiculturalism has become an ideology, an insane ideology, which we here in Quebec have to uh, rid ourselves of. And I think that was really the starting point. It was fueled largely by one media conglomerate, uh, which owns a couple of the <laughs> one of the big big newspapers here and uh, yeah. one of the big uh, radio, television stations. Um, and they went essentially on a feeding frenzy, uh, looking for every possible uh, case of some immigrant getting some benefit. Uh, Completely confused because very often these were uh, um, th these had nothing to do with public institutions, but rather private private actors coming to agreements with one another. Remember the the famous uh, why should I go into the YMCA? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yes, you should. Yeah, that's so, such a sexy example. There, so. there was a there was a case. Uh, I guess now it's it's becoming ancient history. Uh, oh, people still talk about it. A 10, yeah. 12, 12 years ago, where yeah. some uh, yeshiva bookers, some uh, young Orthodox Jewish boys studying Torah in a yeshiva uh, in my land, uh, were just across the street from the YMCA, where uh, people uh, were you know exercising before scantily clad women, well or yeah. men, you know whatever <laughs> yeah. you know. Um, quite uh, sweating and uh, in, in tight and diminutive clothing. Um, and this was not necessarily compatible with the thinking of uh, biblical thoughts. So the, the, the yeshiva went to see the YMCA and said, look, you know, um, keep on keeping on. But, you know, we want, we'd like to pay for, uh, we, we will pay for frosted windows so that our boys aren't distracted by your people doing their exercise. Your hotness, yeah. Uh, and um, the YMCA, um, you know, th this is a this is a cash-strapped institution, not a public institution, but a cash-strapped institution, you know, thought new windows, you know, uh, free. Yeah, uh, right. You know, bring it on. And I guess the, uh, the idea was that the windows let in the sun without, you know, they, they blocked the sight of the sure. people doing their exercise without, it was a one-way sort of thing. Yeah. So it wasn't taking away from, uh, the people exercising on the inside, except for the people, I guess, who wanted to be seen uh, by the people <laughs> on the outside. Um, uh, so, and, and this became a bit of a, a, bit, a bit of a firestorm, um, where again, this was seen as a case of accommodation, whereas, you know, I, people like myself had to uh, sort of scream ourselves silly, reminding people that these are two private actors coming to a private uh, accommodation. If you have pink yeah. flamingos on your uh, on your front lawn next to my house and I don't like the sight of them, if you and I agree that you're going to reduce the number of flamingos that are there by <laughs> half, you know, just to, uh, as a compromise, that's too... Yeah, and I, I don't know anybody that goes to that particular temple, but I do know people that... Um that go to that gym. Yeah. And they said uniformly, they said, look, 
we didn't we're not comfortable with the fact that people are checking us out while we're working out so it's a win-win on both ends like sure. nobody nobody sure. was saying but everything was fueled by the desire to uh, exaggerate the the problem so about uh well we just celebrated actually the 10th year of the publication of the report the provincial government of quebec uh so 12 years ago um named a commission that was headed by two of our leading intellectuals charles taylor and Jean bouchard to study the problem uh its report was handed down just over 10 years ago now uh, and one of the first things that it did was go uh send you know investigative teams out to all the places that had been um the sources of these of these stories and found out that most of the time they were either misreported, uh, you know, crucial elements were left out. They had nothing to do with public institutions and so should be irrelevant from the point of view of people worrying about, uh, you know, too much legal and uh, accommodation. Um, but uh, but, you know, we, we have been in this melodrama now for uh, for for going on. Um, 15 years. And so the point that I wanted to make is that because of this, um, I think that we, and, and I think that it's gone beyond the media now, maybe this is something that has afflicted all of us because we live in a world that is so informed by the media, we tend to see difference a lot more than we see the remarkable integration of immigrants into um, the labor, the labor force, into uh, social institutions, into, um, you know, uh, uh, public institutions, uh, running for office at a rate which is, you know, what you would hope to see people, uh, you know, they're not sort of separating themselves from the um, from the public institutions, from political institutions, from political parties, uh, what have you. Um, and so, uh, you know, I think that it is still the case that integration in Quebec and in Canada in general is a good news story. We've just focused our attention somewhere else. We have started to focus a lot more on uh, the difference. Look, um, when I was growing up, the story, you know, I grew up in the 60s and early, you know, 70s. I turned, uh, you know, I became a, an adult uh, in 1981. So, you know, my childhood and adolescence is the 60s and 70s. I lived in an almost exclusively Jewish neighborhood, right? Talk about, uh, you know, uh, non in, in a sense, non-integration, you know, um, I, I lived amongst Jews. Mm -hmm. um, my parents weren't even religious Jews. They were actually quite unreligious Jews, but that's just what you did. You, uh, you congregated with your own. Um, and, you know, we, my father would go to work every day, uh, you know, and he'd work with Italians and French Canadians, and I'd go to school where I was surrounded by kids from all sorts of walks of life. But um, there was a form of self-imposed residential segregation. To some degree, there still is. We didn't have cameras and, you know, reporters coming in saying, look, you know, the Jews are, are living by themselves, <laughs> you know, off in their, you know, uh, mm. ghettos here. Um, what was focused on was the other side of the story, which was quite remarkable, again, integration into uh, the political institutions of, of Quebec. A little bit of anti-Semitism, no worse than anywhere uh, else, I would say. So... Um, I, I would, it's a long-winded way of saying that, you know, I think that um, we should be careful before we assume to too great a degree that um, the story has changed all that much. Now, this goes back to the point that we started with like a few minutes ago, which has to do with the welfare state and, and, yeah. and diversity. Um, I think you're right. I think people do. I think, they're, you know, it has to be the case that not just for the purposes of redistribution, for the purposes of all sorts of things. It is better when people view themselves as part of a community rather than part of just an anomic, you know, um, set of institutions. There's a, there's a worldwide movement now, which is actually um, very, very interesting, uh, um, called Compassionate Communities, which basically says, look, from the point of view of health, 
right? There are all kinds of things that we can do in order to recommunitize, or if that's a word, our communities. They're actually good for people's health. You know, if you know that there's an old lady over there, you know, who's living by herself, uh, have a kind of an organized rota in the community where people will go knock on her door every couple of days and see if she's okay and if she needs anything. And if it gets icy, you know, uh, make sure that she can get her groceries and, and stuff like that. There, you know, if you know somebody's recently lost a, a, a partner, uh, you know, having a having some kind of a community. There are all sorts of things that we can do as communities to make our communities more community-like. They're actually good for our health, our mental health, even our physical health. Um, but I don't think that the making of community requires ethnocultural identity. I think that uh, uh, it requires leadership signals um, that, that point to our commonalities and don't obsessively point to our differences for political gain. So going back to the sentence, I, the thing I said at the very, very beginning of this uh, exchange, community is a, a dependent variable rather than an independent variable. It depends on what other people are doing. And in particular, it depends on what political leaders and um, uh, media are doing. And, you know, one of the things that is probably the most, you know, troubling uh, in, in the last few years in Quebec and perhaps even in, in other parts of the world is the degree to which political leaders have sought to um, accentuate the differences, uh, point to them, view them as problematic for political gain out of a political calculation. Mm -hmm. Well, I know that you see this with natural disasters. You saw this when there was that heat wave in France a little while ago where they asked all these medical professionals to come back early from their vacation and the vast majority of them refused to do so and a lot of old people died, right? And then you can see what's happened, uh, what happened in New Orleans with Hurricane Katrina. And when I think about one of the moments that really defines for me what it means to be like a Quebecer, what it means, I think about the Great Ice Storm. I have 1998, and I remember they uh, we had lost all power, and it's the middle of the winter, and the temperature was supposed to go down quite a bit that night, and there was no electricity, no, which is, and most of the heat is baseboard electric and so they were worried that there would be people like old people and people with uh, disabilities who wouldn't uh, would be too cold or they wouldn't be able to get out they wouldn't have their medication or food and so they said we're going to actually go house to house and knock on every single door and ask people if they need blankets if they need food if they need you know anything like that right so they went on the radio and they said um, we need a lot of volunteers, the uh, the military was organizing it, and they said, if you'd like to volunteer, please go to the closest high school to you and in the gymnasiums, and we're going to... Uh, and so my friends and I heard this, and we immediately went to the gymnasium. Uh, the gymnasium was packed within a half an hour. And I'll never forget, like, the, the soldier who was at the door there were tears streaming down his face. Like he was so moved by how quickly people wanted to come forth and to volunteer for this, right? So it seems like community of that kind where people will, you know, this is, you know, part of why we both disapproved of uh, Andrew Potter's, um, you know, infamous piece, right? Where he talked about, you know, what's wrong with Quebec society. Um, you know, and so th there is this kind of sense of community here, but I often suspect I'm I worried that it does have something to do with the fact that there's more of a feeling of homogeneity among a lot. I 
I, I worry. What do you think about that? Well, you know, I, I think I think again that uh, you know the evidence that you look at. You know, we're, we're I don't know when this is going to air, and hopefully this this situation gets a um, you know a happy resolution. Uh, there's a little boy who's missing right now in um, in Cartierville, Hunsik, yeah. uh, who's been missing for uh, for eight days. Um, I think that the, the community response are, you know, hundreds or thousands of people who have, uh, uh, who in the community, which is a very, very multi-ethnic community yeah. that have joined in the efforts to, uh, to try to find him combing centimeter, square centimeter by square, square centimeter, the area around his home. Um, you know, I, I think that people are of mixed motives. People are, uh, complex. That's what mm-hmm. makes, uh, politics, uh, both, which what makes life interesting and sometimes frustrating. And, um... You know, politicians and media and all of those things that uh, mobilize us um, can either appeal to the better angel of our natures or to to the to the worse. And th- both those things are are mobilizable. Um, you know what what I see uh, is um, the, a calculus, uh, obviously a calculus that maybe goes back to some of the things that we were talking about uh, before um, about you know the extent to which you can actually have political success by um, playing wedge politics. Uh, the calculus has shifted in a way that has made some politicians feel, uh, and not just in Quebec, uh, in, in, in the rest of Canada as well, um, like there may be some advantage to be had from um, playing to the, the, the worst angel of our, of our natures. And I think that, um, you know, they're, 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 we, people like us should keep on, you know, sort of uh, arguing about Look, that's what's happening. It's not that people are inherently racist. It's that you know they are being mobilized. If a lot but there's of- risks associated with that. I mean, I remember you, unlike a lot of sort of ivory tower intellectuals, you got down into the mess of the yeah. whole charter debate and you took public positions yeah. on it. And there was a a whole. A, kind of campaign of character defamation <laughs> yeah. against you they were going after you yeah. hard yeah yeah that, I mean, that, so there's a lot that, of so, risks associated well there's with risks that. there's there's individual uh risks because to some degree you know there's a i think that's the case in anybody who um who takes uh who takes political stands be it as a public intellectual or as a, an actual politician look um we have friends both of us i think who have recently to perhaps their own surprise um and i don't know if this is this is the time that we want to jump into this uh uh, achieved some political success at the municipal level here in Montreal <laughs> yes, yes. by, by yeah. waking up one morning and, and, and you know, they, what, I'm mayor of what? Yeah. You know, whereas <laughs> a few weeks before that didn't seem like it was going to yeah. happen. Um, you know, I know some people who um, who are now over things like whether a road should be allowed to go, go over, over the, the mountain, mountain yeah. are getting, you know, are getting hate mail, hate email yeah. on, a, on a daily basis. Um, so, uh, it, it, I, th- I think that there's, there's, it, it is, it is something that, um, well, it, 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 I, I, I can't deny it. And it is something that is psychically and emotionally, uh, somewhat exhausting, right? Yeah. Uh, I woke up one morning, uh, just before I was supposed to give a, a fairly public speech, uh, to a group called, uh, Quebec Inclusif, uh, around the time of the charter debate to find that I had like a thousand emails in my, uh, inbox from places around the world, um, calling me names, yeah. had no idea why. Um, and one of my friends pointed me to an article in the Huffington Post in which, oh, it's a long story, but a lecture that I'd given at Berkeley, uh, which was recorded, uh, had been quite cunningly, um, sort of chopped up, 
to make it sound like oh, I was maliciously t- cut up. They made it sound you were representing <laughs> another person's argument. That's right. You were presenting another person's yeah. argument, which is common to do. You steal man In the first and you person. recount. Yeah. yeah. And they, they made it sound as like if I was you were saying. Position. Yeah. Yeah. So it's something that I'm a lot more careful about. This is something that we do in philosophy. When you entertain a position, you kind of go into the voice of the person who would hold that position. Yeah, exactly. Uh, well, Hitler and, argued this, and this yeah, is what his well, theory of history here was. I, here, I'm, here I am, Hitler. <laughs> and, uh, you know, uh, um, to try to, and you know, in a way, it's part of good pedagogy, right? To uh, if, you, if you represent a position in the first person, you are almost psychologically led to representing it more fairly than you would by representing it in the third person. So I think it's a pedagogical tool that, uh, you know, has its, has its merits, but then has its dangers. So I woke up to find that I had been, um, you know, uh, labeled in an editorial in the Huffington Post as a uh, defender of uh, female genital mutilation. Yeah, you were on like some right wing like watch list or something. Like and uh, luckily, I know lawyers, right? Even before I joined the law school, uh, you know, I, I immediately contacted uh, friends who, um, you know, the, the matter was shut down within 24 hours. Uh, there was an apology and the article had been retracted. But uh, I think of other people who don't necessarily have the luxury of my uh, kind of position, who can't just call up a bunch of lawyers to have them send out, uh, you know, lawyers' letters saying cease and desist or, you know, you will have a defamation suit uh, on your rear end uh, in, in minutes. Uh, so, yeah, there, there is a personal cost. On the other hand, um, uh, you know, I think I think uh, very often the bark is worse than its bite. Uh, in this particular case, the person who um, who um, who had written the editorial emailed me subsequently, you know, to try to patch things up, and uh, it was clear that um, well, I don't want to go into into too much uh, uh, personal personality issues, but. Uh, I don't always worry about the people who bark the the loudest. Although you're right that it is extremely taxing on an individual psychological level, and uh, you know a lot of people who, again, without necessarily being ready for it, have found themselves uh, in political office uh, uh, here in Montreal, having been not necessarily trained for this sort of thing. I think are finding it very difficult to deal with uh, the hate mail. You know, there's something about email. There's something about the ease of communication. You don't, you know, writing a letter with a pen uh, means that there's going to be a little bit of self uh, filtering and self-censoring. Sending off an email at one o'clock in the morning is the easiest thing in the world, and you can say anything you want. And uh, yeah, I uh, think the the other side is true as well. Like I think we, I always tell my my students and I tell my friends, if you really, you know, if you voted for a politician or you like certain thing and they're doing what you wanted them to do, uh, send them send them a long message, send them a thoughtful message saying, hey, like I I support what you're doing. Yes. This proposal about uh, closing down that road from Mount Royal, this is what we voted for. Right. This fits into what you're doing and send them. And like, I, I actually got a message back from our bearers. She said, thank you so much. Yeah. You know, like it's nice because it can be very hard emotionally when you're getting so much hate. Yeah. And it's nice for people to come out and, you know, say some nice things about it. Like you did right about that, right? To say some well, uh, yeah, positive things yeah. about what's yeah. happening. There. I, and to remind to remind people, I mean, you know, I, I I'm I'm actually agnostic. I I actually I think on the face of it, it sounds like a good idea. You know, uh, as someone who used to own a car and and used to do exactly what uh, what they say, you know, namely use <laughs> that road as a fast way yeah. of getting from uh, west to east and east to west. Uh, I I know that 
that they were right. Um, it sounds like a good idea. And, to, you know, and, and the point of it is we elected a party that made no bones uh, about the fact that it wants to reduce uh, the use of private cars in Montreal. Uh, you know, anybody who paid even a trifling attention to their uh, campaign, you didn't have to go into detail yeah. to know that. And part of the way you're going to do that is to make it a pain in the butt to drive a car, to change the calculus. You know, yeah. when I owned a car, uh, you know, I remember time and time again, um, the, the mental, you know, I, and I knew what was happening as it was happening. There's the car right on the curb. It's a little bit too cold outside. It's a little bit too hot outside. I know that five minutes after I get into my car, I'll be thinking, why did I do this? You know, why did I get in the car? But it's that micro, you know, it's that micro decision of the first instant. You know, uh, it'll be really cold walking over the uh, expressway to the metro. It's going to be unpleasant, you know, or, or when it's hot. You know, I don't want to be sweaty. Um, but um, if you just pushed it a little bit more, made it even a little bit less attractive for me to drive a car, that micro moment, that first moment, I would have, you know, I would overcome. That's the way in which we make change. It's not by, I mean, yeah, this is this is actually a big issue about um, you know why is it that um, you know we know the science of climate change and we know the science of of pollution and yet people don't change their behavior? Uh, well, part of it has to do with the you know the immediate cost benefit analysis. It doesn't affect our immediate cost benefit analysis. And in order to get anywhere, it has to. Uh, so you just have to make it a little bit more painful. They told us that that's what they would do. And, um, you know, I welcome a political party getting into power and actually, you know, doing uh, doing really robust things in order to get to where they think we should be as a city. Um, happy cities, by the way, when you look at the happiness indexes, happy cities are it's almost a straight correlation with um, linear correlation with uh, absence of uh, cars in the city core. Uh, wow. You know, once we get over Walking the hump, cities, walking cities, uh, cities with uh with uh, with good public transport, you know, are uh, cities in which um, so the idea that people will desert the downtown core, no evidence for that at at all. Uh, on the contrary, um, you know, once the car logic is set in place, that's where you have a risk of um, of of the, of the urban core becoming decayed. Because if people are thinking car as the parameter, as the you know, as the default, well, they have a choice between suburban malls where there's ample free parking, or downtown where they're going to have to pay uh, you know an arm and a leg to park if they can find a parking spot. Well, I'll go to the mall, right? But if you uh, if this if if you manage to change that default, right? Um, then all of a sudden the city becomes a really attractive, fun place with a lot of walkable uh, spaces, especially in the summer, you know. So, um, so yeah, I I, um, I I I don't know how we got to this actually, but oh well, uh, the, yeah, it fits perfectly with that because one of the things that's always impressed me about you is like not only as a philosopher that you try really hard to be a public intellectual and to engage in what's going on and get involved in political discussions and try and elevate the debate a little bit, but you also try to kind of live philosophy to a lot. I mean, I remember, I'll never forget the first time I met you, it was at a, a dinner party and it, I offered you a glass of wine and you said, uh, you said, no, thank you. And I said, why? And you said, well, I, I drove here tonight and I think it's unethical to drink and drive. Oh my, what, what, and yeah. No, no, but you didn't say it yeah. in like a preachy shitty way. It was like, you just said, I just think, I think it's unethical to, to drink and drive. It increases the likelihood that you might uh, have right. lower response time. And so I'm 
uh, no thanks. Right. Um, and you said also, and you kind of laughed, and you said, well, also, it makes me a little sleepy, and, you know, I don't think I'm going to sleep here tonight. So. Right. <laughs> and, and so I, I offered your wife one. She's like, yeah, okay, fine. But I, <laughs> one of the more recent things that I've seen as this in you is that you've recently decided to stop eating meat, which I was yeah. amazed. Yeah, Can you, only, how's that going, and why did you make so, that decision? Well, and, so so not only meat, I'm, I'm trying to cut out pretty much all uh all uh, animal uh, you're going products. straight vegan well I don't I don't <laughs> like that word I'll, I'll explain I'll explain why um, so one of the things that so I I, um, I am the director at McGill of a thing called the Institute for Health and Social Policy and one of the issues that uh, I've become very aware of and actually kind of freaked out about quite honestly you know climate change we kind of know about one of the things that I think has been getting less of the kind of media uh, that the, the, than climate change and it really should is antimicrobial resistance. Basically, the idea is that we over uh, we abuse uh, antibiotics, and by abusing antibiotics, we're creating superbugs that are going to um, uh, be difficult to, to to kill. Now, if you think about humanity before we invented antibiotics, it was, ugly. It was not a it was not a pretty pretty sight. And you know, there are a lot of scientists now who are talking about a post antibiotic uh, world, which is pretty scary. Now. You know, we have kids, and uh, you think, oh, well, you know, um, is it because I used antibiotics too much when, when my kid had earaches? And, no, not at all. Uh, the proportion of the overuse of antibiotics that comes from individual use, you know, is, is, is infinitesimal. Uh, the big part of it is in industrial animal uh, husbandry, where, uh, I mean, think about it. It doesn't take, uh, you know, PhD and whatever to, to understand it. You have animals living in... Um, close proximity to one another, to say the least, right, in yeah. caged conditions. And prophylactically, they are just fed uh, antibiotics in order to keep them from getting sick from one another. Um, now, that uh, that uh, the antibiotics that they use get is then in the food, obviously, but it's also a lot of the spill-off, right? Uh, scientists are... Are, uh, are taking measures from our drinking water and finding that we have high levels of antibiotic uh, in, our, in our drinking water, in, in the water that we use for all kinds of purposes. Um, and this is, has entirely, is entirely to do with the way in which we use the industrialization of, um, of, of uh, animal husbandry for uh, meat, but also for uh, dairy and, uh, uh, you know, for eggs. Um, so, you know, I, I think a vegan, most of the vegans that I know are people who think that any case, you know, often the rural areas of France, whenever a uh, farmer grabs a chicken and, you know, uh, slashes its neck to uh, have chicken, you know, uh, the, the sin has been. So I don't believe that. Right. Uh, but I do think that it is a huge, um, uh, both a moral and a human catastrophe. Uh, industrial animal husbandry is, is a big, big, big civilizational uh, mistake. Um, and so th that's really the reason that I, so I'm not a hundred percent vegan, right? If I do go to the countryside or if I'm, you know, if I'm assured that there's a piece of meat that, you know, has not been through this, I have no moral objection to it. Although I find, I find that as I stop eating meat, um, the desire to eat meat lessens, right? Okay. So it's not like, you know, um, I'm, I'm jonesing for that steak. <laughs> I actually, on, on one occasion, so I have- th Didn't I have, you go to Moishes? I did, I yeah. did, I did. So yeah. I have three, three principles, which is, you know, I won't eat any um, animal products except in three cases. One is um, if it would be culturally insensitive not to. So you're in some faraway place and you're invited to dinner and, you know, the- <sighs> You're visiting in a new community and they want right, to eat like right, the heart of right, a seal. Right, right, You're going to be like, bring it on. Yeah. Bring it on. Uh, usually that won't be industrial. You won't be. No. Uh, yeah. 
the second is if if there would be some kind of you know really culturally significant thing that I would miss. So I was in Denmark recently, and there's a restaurant called Noma, which uh, the sh- the chef uh, is a visionary kind of you know one of the most important and interesting chefs in the world. He had a pop-up in uh, Copenhagen when I was there a few months ago, and I managed to get a ticket, and I thought, okay, I'm, whatever he gives me, you know, I will eat. <laughs> and there was a little bit of meat, not very much, not very much at all. And the third is uh, when I feel like it. Um, so there was, a, there was an occasion recently where uh, a friend of mine turning 50 uh, I wanted to go to Moishe's for his dinner. I thought, oh, I'll have a steak, you know. And uh, it made me really, really sick. Oh uh, wow! Yeah, it was. It was not on the on the moment. It, it looked really appetizing, but the next day was not good. Uh, and I realized I hadn't had that much meat in in months. And so, um, you know, the desire for meat, as you have experiences like that, just just goes down. So it's actually not that difficult. We. We live in a city, you know, as someone who travels a lot and who uh, has his Happy Cow app on his phone to find out where the vegetarian and vegan food is in the city. Um, we live in a city which is probably one of the easiest cities to be a vegan in of any city that I've uh, that, I, that I've come across. There are fast food chains, vegan fast food chains, one right down the street from where we are right now. Uh, you know, I can walk from where I live in NDG to uh, six or seven really good vegan restaurants, vegan uh, places that make um, that sell vegan substitution products. So I haven't experienced this too much of a sacrifice. And, you know, if we think of climate change as something that requires that we change some of our behaviors, like with cars and things like that, then I think we ought to be just as worried as as antimicrobial resistance. But it leads to the conclusion not that, you know, if we all cut 90% of our animal products out of our diet, there wouldn't be the call for the kind of mass production of animal products that, uh, that, that, that requires industrialization. And the problem would, in effect, be... Solved. So the reason that I don't call myself a vegan is because there's a lot of baggage that comes with yes, that. Yes, there is. Yeah. But I also think that there are a lot of vegans who are kind of absolutists in the sense that every you know chicken killed is a is a moral fault, and that's not the way that I came to it. Yeah, it's interesting. The Israeli historian Yuval Harari, in his book um, *Sapien*, I believe it's in *Sapien*, uh, he pointed out something which I had somehow managed to get all the way to my early 40s without knowing which is that if you take all animals on earth that are, let's say, sort of bigger than a hamster or like, you know, like over a pound, right? And you just by weight, and we're talking including blue whales and, you know, elephants and everything. If you go by weight of all those animals, 90% of the animals on planet earth right now are either humans or our animal, our, our domesticated animals. So cows, chickens pigs you know um our pet cats dogs there's more dogs right now on like domestic dogs like if you add up all the wild wolves and coyotes and everything else all together it doesn't even come close to the number of domestic dogs that there are in the world right now well i made it all the way to 54 without knowing that yeah uh, it's it's really quite it's one of those things that when I read it, I immediately called up some friends who are, know about this stuff. And I said, is this true? Because this sounds like total <laughs> bullshit. And they said, no, no. And they pointed me in the direction of, you know, they said, no, that's completely true. He's not uh, he's not making that. 90%. So right now on planet Earth, the most common animal on planet Earth is the chicken, chicken sure right yeah. and and they're all basically our slaves yeah. <laughs> like, there's a so. there's a there's a vegan uh, there's a there's a vegan advocate and i forget his name but uh, this is probably something that can be quickly googled um who basically was one of the early vegan advocates you know arguing for a completely meat-free egg-free dairy-free diet and um he he came to the realization 
remember reading this about a year ago, so recently, that it just wasn't working. Although, you know, the, the rate of, of veganism today is, is you know, it, it, it's an order of magnitude greater than it was even a decade ago. But he thought that it could never become a mass movement. So he decided to reorient all of his uh, activities on chicken and said that if we could get people uh, away from eating um, industrial, uh, industrially farmed chicken, uh, then w- the amount of good that we'd be doing would justify not really sweating the, you know, the beef and the the pork and 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 what have you. I mean, think about it. You know, the one something that I'm starting to try to do at McGill with um, only limited success now is um, if you take a big institution like McGill and you think about all of the boxed lunches or the or the the crappy lunches that get served at meetings, you know, sure. at lunch meetings, just because you have to give people food, right? And they hardly notice what they're eating. Either you're going to get them something really good, which you don't have the money for necessarily, and at a mass level, it's hard to produce, you know, a hundred lunch boxes for people. Uh, so you give them a lunchbox that has like bread with some protein in it, right? And very often it's going to be chicken because chicken is, say, from a religious point of view, you know, you don't have to worry about, um, you know, Muslims or Jews, you know, worrying about pork. And, uh, you know, you don't have to worry about people maybe with high blood pressure or something worrying about beef. So chicken is the go-to meat, right? It's the go-to protein that you just stick between two pieces of bread. Nobody notices what they're eating, right? It's just literally in order not to be hungry anymore. Um, now, if you if you were to if you were to eliminate that kind of you know excess chicken, as it were, it's, it's not doing anybody any good. It's not providing yeah. anybody with any aesthetic or you know gustatory uh, pleasure. It's yeah. literally filling the hole. Um, and you replaced it with some other form of protein. The amount of you know, and you multiply that over you know thousands upon thousands of institutions around the world. Switch the default. Think about driver's licenses where we, you know, uh, used to have to tick a box in order to signify that we were ready to give our organs uh, in case we got into an accident, right? You forget to do it, right? Uh, Switch the default, right? It is assumed that you're ready to give your organs if you're in an accident, unless you tick the box, in which case, no. Um, Let's flip the default with this kind of like excess meat uh, that nobody's noticing that's not giving humans any real utility relative to what they would have with a good, you know, veggie patty or something like that. Um, and, you know, just that, forget about veganism of an absolutist kind, just that would 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 have huge amounts of, uh, uh, you know, of, of an impact without anybody really, uh, without any real significant cost for people. We always have to tick a box when we say we have special dietary requirements, right? Um, If somebody feels like they want the meat, right? Well, tick the box and uh, and we'll provide it. Yeah, it's funny. Nassim Nicholas Taleb, he he talks about vegetarianism and he says, you know, he's not a vegetarian or, or a vegan, but he said he decided at a certain point to just, he's Greek Orthodox, you know, from, right. from Lebanon, and he decided to just start keeping all the Greek Orthodox holidays. And he said, if you just keep the Greek Orthodox holidays, you're eating vegetarian about, I can't remember the number, it's something outrageous, like a, like 150 days out of the year, oh, you're, right? eating, you're eating okay. uh, basically vegan or vegetarian. And he said, just by doing that, he was able to, you know, improve his health. And he said, if you look at a lot of these kind of older traditions, they they had built right into there a lot of sensible ideas, right? And he said, sure. so we eat, we end up eating like way too much meat. Oh yeah, because it is kind of what you as you say, it's the default. Right? Yeah, yeah, and there's a lot of just excess cruelty there, and also just a public health, a public health nightmare, which. Uh, 
I mean, again, just wrap your head around the idea of a post-antibiotic world. Wrap your head around the idea that you know just, we both have have kids and the magic yeah. of the magic of that banana smelling kind of thing <laughs> that takes your kid who's howling from a an earache and and soothes them within you know a couple of hours. You know, imagine a world, or even worse, imagine a, a world in which uh, that's no longer there. Think of antibiotics and how important they are to uh, surgery and. Uh, you know, to dealing with really, really serious uh, stuff. We're now, you know, we're now using the kinds of antibiotics which are which were usually thought of as second or third line, right? Um, you know, uh, as first line for a lot of uh, a lot of infections. We're, we're, it's not something in the scary future. We're we're going through it right now, and for some reason, it hasn't penetrated uh, public consciousness quite as much as climate change. Not the climate change has made a huge difference to our behavior, right? <laughs> but, uh, you know, yeah. when I talk to people about, yeah, I'm, I've stopped eating meat because of antimicrobial resistance, they often don't yeah, really know what it means over. or know what the connection is, right? Mm -hmm. Why would you be worried about antimicrobial resistance when you're eating meat? Well, it's because the only way that we get to have, you know, buck 99 a pound uh, hamburger uh, is uh, by using um, antibiotics on an industrial level in order to create cheap meat. Okay, well, I actually this I want to circle back to something we were talking about initially because one of the arguments that was made very very often in the 20th century, even in the 19th century, was that liberal democracy was provided a, a kind of a political culture that was very so it would protect you almost like antibodies would protect you against extremist ideas and if you had mass public education, all these things would create a very robust political community that could resist extremes. I mean, if you look back to even in the 17th century, the Massachusetts Bay Colony, when they were justifying why they wanted to have uh, public education paid for by the by the state, as it was then, they, they specifically said this will prevent us from being easily infected by religious enthusiasts, demagogues, religious demagogues, leaders and things like that will have a harder time coming and firing us up because people will have uh, a basic knowledge right now this is this is a very very common idea i grew up with this idea but there have been uh, people recently like jason brennan for instance in his book against democracy uh, and then more recently i just mentioned nasim nicholas taleb in his new book skin in the game and brennan says that in fact political parties fire us up much more than we than we need to get fired up they've they highlight our differences yeah. and exaggerate them in ways. So rather than actually making us more immune to these kinds of uh, extremes, they encourage them. And then uh, a sort of a complementary point that Taleb makes in his new book is he says that, yeah, he has a whole section there where he talks about the power of intolerant minorities and how very often if you have an intolerant minority on any particular issue and if they're very committed uh, they can find ways to game the system, even in a, in a democracy. So you can have, a, I mean, we see this to some extent in Israel right now, right, where you can have a, a minority can end up controlling things if they're well organized and well disciplined. Yeah. And if the, if the, so there, there, there are a bunch of things to what you said. And if, if the, if the political system uh, gives them traction, right? So um, it's actually funny that you mentioned this. I'm working, I'm just finished a paper and I'm working on another one on these topics right now. You know, there's, uh, there's, we, we just went through a kind of an aborted debate in this country on um, electoral reform, 
Yeah. Right now, um, you know, a lot of people point. You're to You're reading the my mind. That's exactly my next oh, okay, question. Good. <laughs> a lot of people point to the fact, and they're not wrong to do so, that the system uh, that we live in in Canada, which is um, misleadingly referred to as first past the post, right? So, um, has a lot of. Um, kind of weird impact of uh, the first past the post is that it distorts it distorts preferences of the population right so if you're a, a you know green party fan of the green party or even the ndp you can see your political party have 10 15 percent support distributed more or less evenly across the country and that'll get you pretty much diddly uh when it yeah. comes to representation Sometimes even 20 percent yeah <laughs> because you lose every riding and if you lose every riding well even if you've lost by one vote in every riding, you still get nothing to show for it. The The flip side of that is, uh, you know, we can have and we have had in this country uh, parties that have had large parliamentary majorities uh, with not even 40 percent of the of the popular of the popular vote. So there seems to be a problem from the point of view of of representation there. One of the, and so people people go from there to thinking, well, we should have a system of proportional representation where representation in parliament is granted as a as a strict linear function of your representation in amongst the preferences of the population, which sounds fair. It has um, two perverse consequences. One uh, and and you know the well, I think they converge onto one. Um, if you look at a country that has the most proportional system there is, which is which is Israel, yeah, um, where the qualification, so you know, you can you can you can you can play with a system in order to counter its more radical uh, implications by having a qualification threshold, saying you know you're not going to get any representation if you don't achieve five percent or ten percent of, of of the vote, right? It, you raise it too high, then the question is why call it a proportional representation system at all? In Israel, I think it's two and a half. Um, and that means that little parties, um, when comes time for one of the bigger parties to form a governing coalition, they look around and they say, well, those three guys over there, right, who you know just got three people elected, if we get them and those two guys over there, we can actually form a coalition. So what that means is that um, um, Proportional representation can actually get you disproportionate power, right? Uh, a lot, again, looking at Israel, a lot of the more radical policies with respect to the imposition of religious, uh, you know, the fact that you can't take, uh, El Al doesn't fly on the Shabbat and the buses don't uh, run on Shabbat, is due to the fact that, you know, three or four guys, basically, and I use the word guys advisedly, um, have basically uh, traded their small number of seats for a disproportionate amount of power. So I think that proportionality um, proportionality in, in terms of sh just numbers in, in parliament can lead to a disproportionate amount of um, of, of power, but the more fundamental thing, and it, it, you know, going into these th questions, I thought, well, of course, you'd have to be crazy not to be a fan of proportional representation. When I started thinking about it, I realize that there's a virtue to a system like ours, um, which is the following. So imagine you are an environmentalist, right? A uh, very radical environmentalist. You can either decide to go it alone, be a one issue, you know, my whole party platform is going to be about environmentalism, in which case you have the risk of basically being shut out of power entirely, getting five or 10% of the votes across the country and no representation. Or you can say, you know what? I'm going to join the Liberal Party or the NDP uh, or even maybe the Conservatives, I don't know, and try to inflect their policies, right, so that they represent a little bit more of, uh, of, of, of what I'm about. 
it's not going to be perfect. It's not going to be pure. Um, but you may actually have an impact, right, on yeah. what, what, what happens. But the other thing is you're going to have to consider the way in which your policy priority can compose and comport with the policy priorities of other people. I mean, I think that one of the huge challenges that we have in, in this country is how to transform what is essentially an oil economy uh, into an economy based on more sustainable uh, modes of energy without devastating uh, an economy that has been, you know, we can't pretend that Canada is something different from what it was. Let's pretend that we can reinvent Canada from scratch as something other than an oil economy. We have hundreds of thousands, perhaps millions of people whose livelihood depend upon the oil economy. And we have to think not so much about how to get there, but how to get from here to there, right? Mm -hmm. And one of the things that big tent parties do is say an NDP, right? If you're an environmentalist who says, you know, I'm going to go and try to ch move the NDP in a, in a greener direction, well, you're going to have to figure out a way of, of, of making that work with the, you know, union perhaps uh, sector of the NDP that's going to say, well, hold on a second. You know, how are the jobs? How are we going to keep the jobs? At the end of the day, I think that that benefits everybody because it means that there's a kind of purity uh, of political purity that gets expunged from the system, uh, which I think is a good thing. Um, and we learn to compromise. Um, so I think political parties now, do the political parties that we have now do this perfectly? Absolutely not. And one of the things I think we have to think about as we organize the fine grain of our political systems is how to make political parties more like this. But the parties that are generated by this imperfect kind of first-past-the-post system uh, that we have here have the potential, at least, which parties under proportional representation have less, of being places in which people with different priorities are forced into a common space where they have to compromise with one another and come up with a kind of a platform where all of these different priorities are made to fit into something more or less semi-coherent. Well, you, you bring up two sort of dirty words right now, which is sort of compromise, right? And that's, uh, as Margaret Atwood pointed out in an op-ed uh, a little while ago, she said that, you know, in times of extremes, moderates are always the the ones that are most kind of demonized right yeah. that, and compromise is very very demonized and doubt is demonized right and so i'm wondering because i've seen many examples of this in the last few years where people who who think compromise is a good thing and think that you should or think that doubt is a good thing i mean one example that uh, springs to mind immediately we were talking about before the whole andrew potter affair like i thought i mean like you i thought his his article was was wrong it was wrong in some and i was you know being a patriotic quebecer i was sort of like it hurt my feelings a bit i was like pissed off about it but i thought his apology was so genuine and i thought it was it was great and i would love to see much more you know public figures be able to stand up and change their mind and say you know i thought it was like this i was wrong and and be able to publicly acknowledge and change their mind where increasingly we're creating this environment that rewards people who just take a very strident position and say i'm i'm totally consistent and never apologize right you know sort of trump his attitude towards lots of things right has is in many ways kind of a style right that you see across the political spectrum i'm wondering i how does how does sort of philosophy survive in an environment that has said that all the things that make philosophy what philosophy is are suddenly 
taboo. No, I I disagree. I think that philosophy thrives in an environment of doubt, right? Our our first philosopher, certainly in the West, uh, was someone who basically went around saying, you know, the only thing I know is that I know nothing, but I can show you that you know a lot less than you think you do, Mm -hmm. right? Um, So no, I think the doubt and the the constant um, questioning of one's own views, you know, uh, you you sent me a text yesterday that sent fear through my, uh, because you said you were reading (laughs) articles of mine. I change my mind all the time on detail. I think that the general sort of thrust of my views has remained consistent but there are issues on which uh i've changed my mind all the time and how could you not right if you're surrounded if you, unless you hide yourself off in a corner and don't talk to anybody right i spend my time talking to people who crit- critique my views and both formally in academic settings but also informally in conversation and unless and unless you completely um you have to be pretty arrogant right to think yeah. that uh you know, the only stance that you could possibly take with respect to those people is just defense. I'm starting from the assumption that I'm right, and I'm going to show you ways in which, uh, you know, to, to make you wrong. So um, a little bit of shameless uh, self-promo. I, I, I <laughs> Last year, as a bit of a, a lark, a friend of mine, at, two friends of mine at University of Montreal in the law faculty and I put out a book where we asked 50 people um, to... Um, write three or four page essays on something that they could do that would improve justice, not in some kind of global, you know, sort of abstract way, but with respect to some institution that they're a part of um, or that, they, they, that they're very interested in. What would be a change that would increase justice? So it did quite well. Uh, you know, it was quite, quite popular, little these bite-sized morsels of three, four pages, both by academics and by people outside of academia. Uh, so we decided to do a second volume uh, where we're going to ask 50 different people about something where they've changed their mind. Tell us. Tell that us, is such a good idea. That is tell such us an a good issue idea. on which you've changed your mind, um, because you know I don't think you can be a thinking person uh, and not change your mind. But the political—you're right. You're right about one thing, which is that we have generated a political culture where there is a cost to changing your mind, and there shouldn't be. I mean, if you're if you're a, if you're a, the French word a girouette, you know, if you're like mm-hmm. uh, you know uh, weather vane, that uh, then that's one thing, but. Uh, I think that I think that people uh, appreciate and respect the sight of someone whose main convictions remain the same, but who may uh, change their mind about how they think those convictions actually, um, you know, where those convictions uh, take them with respect to this or, or that issue, or who are willing to compromise even if they haven't changed their mind. I'll give you an example. I was involved for. Uh, a number of years on the issue of um, physician-assisted dying, medical yep. assistance in, in dying, as we now call it here in Canada, MAID. And um, I actually spent two years with a group of other academics writing a report for the Royal Society of Canada in which we argued um, uh, for the legalization under certain circumstances of uh, medical assistance in dying. Um, when the law that the Liberals or the Supreme Court uh, invalidated the criminal restriction against medical assistance in dying... The law that the liberals uh, put in place was much more small-c conservative with respect to the kinds of cases in which um, you know people should be allowed in Canada to ask for medical assistance in dying than where our arguments had taken us. Um, a couple of my colleagues on the committee uh, have been spending their time sort of sniping at the government, which I respect. But, you know, having seen the passion and the good faith with which people on the other side hold the opposite view, right, including a lot of physicians, right, who are uh, basically saying, this is, you have to realize, right, it's one thing to hold this position as an abstract kind of philosophical proposition. It's another thing for us who've been trained as the zealous defenders of human life at all costs. Taking the Hippocratic Oath and everything, yep. To say, under certain circumstances, we're not going to expect you, essentially, to end people's lives 
with their consent and with their requests and all that under incre- incredibly parlous medical conditions. But nonetheless, so um, I think that what we arrived at uh, in Canada was a compromise. The thing about a compromise is it buys you goodwill, right? If people can look at a political agreement and say, you know what, not perfect, not perfect by any stretch, but I feel that I was listened to. I feel that my concerns, uh, especially when you're a minority looking at a majority that could have just rammed through, right, it had the numbers, a more radical phase. Well, the thing about minorities is in the democracy, they have a pesky habit of becoming majorities. And, you know, if they didn't have the goodwill on the other side of people saying, you know what, we disagree, but we're going to reflect your position a little bit in the ultimate policy. Um, well, what prevents them from getting into power and saying, well, we're just going to wipe everything out that you, you, did, uh, uh, you did before. So I think in a, in a democracy, compromise is something that um, I think is, 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 it can be morally, uh, morally required. It also establishes the foundation for a kind of trust over time uh, that makes politics less of a kind of a crazy swinging back and forth between extremes that you have in places where trust is low uh, and more of an ongoing conversation. Now, the big challenge is, of course, there are issues with respect to which you shouldn't compromise, right? Um and identifying what those are is a huge issue, right? Um, we'd say, well, where people's rights are at play, we don't, uh, we don't compromise. But that's a weasel way out because, of course, there are differences. A lot of the differences that we have politically are on how to interpret rights. Uh, I have stood for people's religious freedoms, right, uh, for, uh, for, for years and years. What is the content of religious freedom? Do the parents at Loyola High School have the right to educate their children as they see fit? Well, you could have legitimate differences between people as to uh, what the content of that right is. As someone who's defended religious freedom, I actually happen to think that um, children are a special case. We should protect children to some degree, at least, against uh, their parents' uh, sometimes well-intentioned desire just to rub themselves off completely, rub their views off completely yeah. on their kids. Um, so to say, well, well, we'll compromise on everything except where rights are at play won't get you far because rights are contested. So, um, yeah, you know, I just want to pause you on that for yeah, a second because there's, there's, a, little, a, no, but there's a, a very important point that I wanted to get to because what you were talking about in terms of compromise and trust, this is something that I, I'm very fascinated by. So I'll give you, a, in a smaller way, I saw this, not nearly as, as much of a big deal as the physician-assisted suicide issue that you were dealing with. But um, I was, you know, the church that Annalise and I go to, I was... Um, elected to go as as a delegate from our church to the national convention the kind of the lutheran church of canada they had a big con- they have a big convention every year in saskatoon and the hot button issue which for a couple of years um, threatened to actually cause a schism and divide the church in half uh, there had been a lot of acrimonious debate about the whole issue of gay marriage sort of the uh, would the church um, allow ministers to to sort of uh, have these churches have these marriages and have them be kind of sanctioned by the by the religious and so there were very very strong people on saying absolutely not uh, and then there were people uh, primarily from uh, big urban areas and from Quebec and, and Ontario frankly uh, from that were very much in favor of this right and what I thought was really fascinating is the way we got to a compromise was first of all by prioritizing things yeah. and saying look 
what do we actually believe? What is really important to us in terms of like doctrine and values? Is this really a top priority thing? Is it second priority? Is it third? Is And actually, I think if we're honest with ourselves on both sides, both of us think that this is a very important, but it's lower down on the priority list. It's like, you know, if we had to list our top 10 things, it's probably lower down on the priority list. And once everybody publicly and to do that requires a lot of trust because there's always you know it's like haggling right you there's always a, a vested interest Habermas talks about this wonderfully with discourse ethics there's always a, a vested interest in uh, sort of exaggerating how important something is to you to gain an advantage and you know like I'm gonna I want my way or else I'm leaving right, right. or else I'm separating or else I we're getting give me my way on this or we're getting divorced. You know, like a, there's a, an, advan an advantage to taking an extreme position. But if you want to get to compromise, you have to first sort of dial that down. Right. And once we had everybody at the at the convention able to at least prioritize and say this is not a, a sort of make or break, then we were able to come to a compromise whereby uh, the Lutheran Church of Canada said, okay, you know what, if you can follow your conscience on this. So if you, if your congregation is a congregation that, that really thinks that gay marriage, there's nothing wrong with it, then it's okay for you to sanction these uh, same-sex unions in your church. That's fine. If your congregation, if the local culture is very uncomfortable with this and doesn't see that, then you don't have to uh, you don't have to sanction them. So they basically came up with a pluralist solution and it was wonderful, right? And I've seen in so many other instances where you have um, extremists and one of the ways in which I think extremists gain an advantage in any context is when they uh, convince you that this is the number one, this is a make or break thing. And I'm wondering just because I know you've written a lot about compromise. I mean, what, what do you think about that yeah I think I think you're I think you're absolutely right um, you know I, well the first the first thing I think we have to and it sounds like this is something that happened is um, you know the thing about the state the thing about uh, uh, you know political norms is that in a way there's really very little choice but to have common norms right uh, there's something about the rule of law that basically is you know so we accommodation is not so much uh, you know different laws for different people as applying laws you know perhaps uh, with a little bit more you know a little bit more uh, circumspectly in certain cases than than in others it has to do with the application rather than with the uh, the law itself um, you know I think in general life one of the things that we have to sanity uh, almost uh, requires that we distinguish the areas in which it's necessary to have common norms so the ones in which it's okay um, to have others so if you have a community like Canada where you have the backstop uh, or Quebec um, I guess where you have the backstop of uh, you know at the end of the day marriage from the point of view of the law is not something that happens you know in religious communities although you know the religious officiant is the person who hands you the the document from the government of Quebec, it is at the end of the day, the norms of the government of Quebec that hold sway, um, you know, to the extent that that is there as a egalitarian backstop for everybody, that religious communities can choose to officiate or not um, in different ways is, uh, is something that as long as the, you know, there's diversity there, I mean, in my own Jewish community, we have, uh, you know, the same thing, not 
so much with respect to uh, to gay marriage, but with respect to uh, interfaith marriage, right? Yeah. You know, uh, when when Elizabeth and I got married uh, almost thirty years ago now, uh, you know, there wasn't a there wasn't a, a rabbi in Montreal that would marry a Jewish man to a non-Jewish woman who wasn't planning to convert. Wow. Um, and it's not the case anymore. Um, you know, there there are there are rabbis now who realize that. Uh, you know, a Jewish household is not necessarily one in which both people have uh, got the the sort of you know, the, 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 well, to some degree, even as a as a question of prudence, as a question of uh, survival, right? If if the Jewish community, which is a very small community, shuts out people who want to be a part of it, uh, but who don't accept that, uh, you know, a condition for it is that uh, the woman necessarily has to be uh, has to be Jewish. That's going to be shutting out a lot of potential uh, members. Um, you know, there is now a diversity of, of views about this issue, and I think it's healthy for the for the Jewish community. The thing about the logic of, you know, I mean, we've all been in this probably even in our personal lives. There's something about the logic of debate and discussion where sometimes it can take you to, um, you know, you'll take a stand where you didn't even think going in that it was that big a deal, you know, and, and when you look back upon it, you say, why did I make such a big deal of this, you know? There are ways in which conversations can go well, and there are co- ways in which conversations can go awry. Uh, in that, in that, pr- precisely in that way, all of a sudden, people will find themselves uh, painting red lines uh, around issues that going in weren't of particular importance to them, and going out, they'll think, well, "I don't know why we we made such a big <laughs> deal of that." There are other cases in which it can go well, right? And and uh, you know. Uh, social life and personal life would be impossible if there weren't instances of this as well where um where people will will accept to do the sort of core and periphery thing that you describe yeah. right uh these are my core beliefs and you know I, i'm not going to move on these but you know i have to recognize that these other issues are ones with respect to which uh they clearly are not uh absolutely central yeah. well, to my... it's, it's funny we just to use it a very interpersonal example Annalise and I very early on in our marriage we came up with this technique I mean we we forgot about it at a certain point and we paid for it but we've figured it out again is we came up with this technique where it was like a a, a one to ten kind of ratio so if we had a a conflict over something like let's say uh, you want to see this movie and I want to see this movie right we would say two or something uh, we would say like well look Tell me, like, on, on a scale of 1 to 10, how much do you want to see this movie? And then I would say, well, you know, I, I want to see it, but it's not like – it's really a 4, right. you know? And she said, well, I really have been looking forward to this. For me, this one's like an 8. And so then we would, we would, go, see, uh, we would go see the movie she wanted to see and vice versa. If I said, I really want to do this tonight, I want to go to this restaurant, and, and she said, well, I really don't feel like it. And I said, well – it's like it's like a seven for me. How much do you want to stay home? Eh, like a five, right? Well, the important thing there is not to abuse it, though, right? Well, exactly. Everything, not the, everything. The whole can be a- thing, the whole thing works. It only works uh, if there's trust that the person yeah. is not going to exaggerate how important um, the this thing is to them. And what and it, in all negotiations, it seems to me that this is very very important. And there's always when when faith breaks down between people is I think part of what breaks it down, and I think the internet has uh, has very much ramped this up, there is a, a vested interest in a lot of these debates at being kind of a sleazy haggler, like I'll give you a quarter for it, right? Or hey, I, my initial price is not at all what I actually right. really want, right. Right. right? And that ends up distorting everything. So if you're a single issue 
um, activist and you're pushing for one thing and you demand purity, it seems to me like in this environment, for a number of reasons, that actually is encouraged. Yeah. Right? Tr trust, tr I think trust is... Uh, Trust is really an important concept, and it's it's understudied. You know, uh, there's a there's a group of uh, the research group that I'm a part of right now uh, that is actually uh, this this is actually uh, um, goes into the mental health issue even. Um, so so indulge me. I'm gonna I'm gonna move away from what we're talking yeah, about. Yeah, but yeah, we'll get back to it. Um, so there, there's an interesting piece of data that has been replicated that has been verified across the world, culturally invariant it seems, um, which is that. Um, Certain kinds of mental health issues, in particular um, uh, psychosis, uh, what are called in the technical language disassociative uh, psychosis. So things like schizophrenia, where you literally disassociate from yourself, as opposed to say something like depression or anxiety, or, yeah. um, is much more common in cities than in non-cities. Oh, wow. And 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 this is the this is the weird the weird thing. But again, it has been verified and re-verified by uh, epidemiologists for 80 years now. Um, the bigger the city, the greater the risk of, um, of, of, um, of some, some form of something like schizophrenia. So you're about twice as, the way that we put it when we want to dramatize this, you're about twice as likely uh, to develop um, uh, psychosis, to develop something like schizophrenia in London, England, than you are in London, Ontario, right? So wow. if you plot it, it's like a linear graph. Now, that's weird, right? Because um, very, I've never so, heard that before. So there's a hypothesis that is out there called the social defeat hypothesis, which basically says, um, you know, uh, one of the things that cities do is they put you in contact with a lot of anonymous strangers, right? Who will sometimes, you know, the, people talk about microaggressions, who will sometimes look at you askance, make a little clucking noise when you pass if you're a little bit different, right? <laughs> um, unsurprisingly, immigrants are more susceptible to this than um, than our members of the majority population. Um, and so the idea is that this actually exercises a kind of a, a psychic pressure like that has a physical correlate on people's minds and that at a certain point they just disassociate. So uh, schizophrenia is kind of like almost like throwing up a separate self, right? It's, uh, it's disassociating from yourself as a response to the repeated, repeated, repeated experience of that kind of pressure, which is, you know, ultimately kind of like almost a physical pressure yeah. on your brain. Now, what that doesn't explain is uh, why it is that big, big cities, right? After all, in any given day, you're only going to come into contact with a finite number of people, right? Um, why is it that uh, a city that is twice the size of uh, another one will have twice the likelihood of generating, um, of generating uh, psychosis? So the hypothesis that we're working with is that the sense, the sort of, so you have to make the assumption that people have a vague sense of the size of the city that they're in, right? Yeah. The sense that you are part of a, a, a large community and that B, the default is that everybody in that community, the default is that they are arrayed against you in somehow, that they are negatively disposed towards the realization of your interests in, in, some, in some way, is the thing that has this, um, so the mistrust you know, that, that, that you harbor towards others uh, that may have been triggered by particular experiences, right, with finite numbers of people, but that then gets translated into, oh my God, you know, there are 10 million people out there who are kind of arrayed against me, um, is what uh, affects people's actually brains. So there's a, there's a, um, 
there's a hormone which is referred to in the literature as the trust hormone called oxytocin. Oh yeah. And uh, and it has been proved that um, you know basically um, traumatic experience of this kind can deplete oxytocin and that there's a. So where am I going with this? Basically, the idea is. Do people feel like they are part of a community in which there is um, trust, in which they can feel that the default is different, that the default is that anonymous others are not necessarily uh, enemies, are not necessarily people that are out to get them, are not necessarily people who, if given the chance, are going to take an advantage from them. I mean, this is key to a lot of things. It's key, obviously, uh, to people's health, right, to people's mental health, to people's abilities to function with other communities. But it's also key politically, right? And um, I think that uh, one of the things that political leadership should, political leaders should realize to a, to a greater degree perhaps than they do, is that um, creating the sense, right, that we are all in this together, creating the sense that these anonymous others are not potential enemies, but that, you know, they are potential friends, or uh, that at least the very least that they are not negatively uh, disposed towards you. Um, is something that is changeable by policy and po politics and even by rhetoric, right? Um, and it, it's a kind of capital that a society can draw on. Uh, you know, Fukuyama talked about high trust and low trust yeah. uh, societies. I think there's something very important there. It, 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 is, it is part of our ability to have conversations that have the form that you described, uh, you know, where we um, converge towards one another around shared concerns looking for ways in which to perhaps downplay the things that separate us as opposed to the reverse. I think that it's an absolutely key feature um, of the success of societies that, um, that we be able to generate trust, that we be able to maintain a high level of trust, not deplete it too much, draw on it when we need to, but uh, know how to regenerate it. And uh, I think leadership uh, is about uh, is about that uh, and um, not succumbing to the siren song of drawing on that fund of trust or depleting that fund of trust for political advantage, uh, but realizing just how the, the, the interest of the community as a whole depends upon being um, a shepherd of, uh, that, of that trust, you know, of, of preserving it as the precious good that it is. I, for me, it would almost be like if I had to give a one-sentence definition of political leadership, that's what it would be, is, uh, you know, uh, promoting and finding opportunities to uh, generate trust within the community well unfortunately one of the I mean this is a human universal it's been around for a long time but a, a very big way to sort of generate enthusiasm for a political cause and you can see this in identity politics you can see this in all different kinds of politics is you create this victim narrative right and you just completely again and again talk about how they are all against us they can't stand us and you create this feeling of this beleaguered sense and of course being uh, growing up here in Quebec we've been we've heard this a great deal you hear it from certain uh, from certain people on the sovereigntist side saying oh we are constantly under attack from English Canada and then you hear it also within the anglophone community oh my god this just this annoying constant yeah. like oh they're coming for us yeah, in our yeah, beds yeah, kind yeah, of thing yeah. And so we've grown up with competing victim narratives, and you've yeah. probably grown up with another one, sure, the Jewish one, sure, which I didn't sure. even grow up with. But so these, and you can see how how kind of addictive and how insidious victim narratives can be. And but what I'm seeing right now in the last 
uh, in the last decade, last sort of decade and a half, is competing victim narratives on a scale that I've never seen before in my life. I mean, the identity politics, the way this works, whether it be on the right, the left, everybody is selling a vision of no trust, right? Yeah. It's us against them. Yeah. We need to unite. We need to be well-organized. We can't trust anybody else. Yeah. How do we get out of that? I don't know. I don't know. Uh, because it's the thing is, it, it, um, it uh, you know, it's 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 a very very difficult uh, it's a very difficult question. It's difficult because some of it is actually um, emancipatory, right? Some yep. of the so you think about well, this is your colleague uh, Jacob Levy's point, right? Where he he actually oh that's right he has, yes he has oh yeah, yeah nice yeah, things to say about identity politics uh, absolutely which is so, amazing. So think about you know one of one of the most remarkable transformations of the last decade or so has been the it's not you know nowhere near perfect but it has been the the ability, put it this way, our kids are living uh, in terms of their gender identities in a world which is unrecognizable from the world in which we grew up, Absolutely. right? Absolutely. So, uh, you know, the idea that you may actually have a gender uh, that is different from the one that seems to be you seem to be predisposed to by uh, your your physical uh, your physical appearance by your sex. Um, Something that you know, growing up in the '60s or '70s, it was it was like a mental illness, right? A, a trans person was 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 a mentally ill person, right? Mm -hmm. uh, who had to hide, who had to hide off, right? Um, you, we know, probably you know as well. Um, you know, families whose kids have uh, have said, you know, um, from now on, I want to be treated as a as a boy or as a girl, and have had the uh, environment, the schools, the families, the environment of friends. Um, adapt and and accommodate that rather than sort of beating it back or or even worse uh being so unaccepting of that uh that the idea of expressing it openly wouldn't have even occurred to these people so uh you know we may be the first our kids may be the first generation in the world whose gender identities are actually expressing themselves uh in the absence of any well or of the significant kinds of restraints and constraints that there were before now the fact that that some so and I think that that's like a human victory of uh, huge proportions, right? That uh, that people no longer feel trapped in their bodies, that people be able to express themselves um, through the gender identities in the way that feels most natural to them. I think is something that is that is a human victory. That it has been repressed for so long, I think, explains perhaps some of the more extreme manifestations of it, right? Uh, uh, you know, think about the Tuval uh, uh, affair or, uh, you know, th think about a lot of the, a lot of the intensity uh, with which those views get expressed, I think may just be reflected by the fact that, you know, it's, it's a pressure cooker that all of a sudden has, the steam has been allowed to, to be released. So how, so the question is, how do we separate out the victim narratives that I think at a certain point just have to be allowed to play themselves out because, you know, people have been victimized. And um, I think there's something wrong about saying, okay, we're recognizing now that, you know, for essentially all of history, uh, this way of, of relating oneself to gender issues has been repressed. But please express it in a very nice and calm <laughs> and, you know, don't raise your voices because, you know, I think is a, is a big is a big ask. Uh, on the other hand, you're talking about like Anglo, you know, I mean, I remember in the summer reading an article in, in, in the Gazette by somebody who'd occupied um, 
you know, important institutional, I can't remember his name and I can't remember exactly what the institutions were, but this was a pillar of the Anglo institution who literally wrote in an op-ed that there will be a day, not not too distant future, where English will no longer be spoken on the island of Montreal. <laughs> and, you know, I'm thinking you have to be either a very bad faith, right? A very yeah. bad faith. I, I canceled my subscription to the Montreal Gazette after reading an editorial like that. I just, just like, this is... A small town university, you know, small town paper pretending right. to be. But you know as well as I do that that view is the tip of the iceberg. Maybe nobody would express it in quite, you know, the, those terms. There will come a time where no more English is spoken on the island of Montreal. It's just around the corner, you know. But um, there is a, a, a discourse of, of, of victimization. And yet being an Anglo in Montreal kind of rocks. Really, yeah, it's you know. amazing. Uh, you actually have more rights than than uh, francophones because you have the choice to send your kids to either French schools or English schools. Sure, sure. I mean, you know... <laughs> you actually uh, have more rights than than. Well, you, you, your, your kids, your kids, our kids, come out of the school system fluently bilingual. Yeah. Um, and uh, and that's for free. You don't have to do anything. You just have to, like, you know, kick them out the door and send them to school, and that's yeah. what they get. What a huge life advantage that is. Um, you know, there's a thriving Anglo culture here. You know, I was... Uh, uh, and and there's a, there's more and more. I was at a there's a Anglo Montreal band called Plants and Animals that was playing uh, just around the corner here uh, last night. It's 10th anniversary of their of their album Park Avenue, and uh, they're an Anglo band, no question. They sing in English. The guys were you know speaking French and English, but obviously more comfortable in English. And I would say just by listening to the conversations around me, more or less half and half French English, right? You can be an Anglo artist, and the French community will embrace you. Um, I'm not sure about the reverse, actually, right? I'm not sure that uh, all the Franco artists are getting the love from us, you know, Anglos that, uh, uh, th that is the case. So, I mean, it's hard to be an Anglophone or to have part of one's identity be uh, English, live in Montreal and say, oh, you know, we're being, you know, we're being wiped out. And yet people do. So yeah. the question is... How do you, um, if you know, the, the idea that everybody has their truth, right, would mean that you'd have to both look at the, you know, uh, trans trans sort of revolution that I talked about a minute ago and say, yeah, that's good. And then turn to the Anglo thing and say, well, you know, you can't you can't celebrate <laughs> the one without celebrating the other. I think it's just, you know, being critical, basically, uh, continuing to keep our critical uh, wits about us in assessing the claims that are being um, that are being made. Um, but, uh, yeah, we're, you know, we're, we're living in a time, you know, I think, I think the same is true also of certain forms of more, uh, uncompromising, um, uh, indigenous identities, right? We will have no truck with the, the settler institutions. In my course at McGill Foundations of Law, one of the segments of the course opposes two incredibly powerful indigenous uh, scholars, uh, John Burroughs, uh, on the one hand, who's a professor of law um, at uh, University of Victoria, spending the year here at McGill, and uh, Tayaki Alfred, uh, also actually a professor at the University of Victoria in their indigenous governance program. And, you know, we read their two books where one of them says, look, you know, we have, you know, I mean, he doesn't put it in these terms, but uh, to be an indigenous person in Canada today and to sort of participate in the institutions of the Canadian state is sort of like, you know, being a Jew and participating in the institutions of the, you know, this is, these are institutions that have tried to wipe us out. You know, how could we possibly um, have any uh, connection with them? And on the other hand, you have Burroughs saying, well, no, you have to be um, instrumental. There are times where you have to say no, and there are times where you have to be able to see that, um, 
for example, you know, getting an Indigenous person named to the Canadian Supreme Court, if ever that day were to come, would be a huge win for the interests of Indigenous people. I get, right, the compromising view, going back to where we're yeah. talking about, is Burroughs, right? Um, there's no absolutes. There's no a priori, right? Yeah. But I totally get why an Indigenous person in Canada today would be uh, very attracted by Tayaki Alford's view. Um, and you just have to let it express itself and to, to a certain degree you have a situation there where there's just zero trust and the trust has to get rebuilt you can't just assume it into existence right yeah. you can't just assume it into existence by saying look you're being unreasonable you're screaming too loud you know um, uh, trust us uh, let's compromise here uh, you know the generations probably have to have uh, sort of sidled up to one another very warily and before you get a fund of trust that uh uh, you know, makes it the case that the Burroughs voice is going to be more uh, sort of dominant in the discourse than the than the Alfred voice. Yeah, I this is something that comes up in my my ethics classes, you know, all the time because it really really bothers me. And I, you know, maybe I I should you know lighten up on this quote, but it bothers me that I have students like on who come from you know relatively privileged suburbs, and they'll go to south america or to central america or to, to africa for some sort of development program and they they go there for a weekend or a week and they they participate in building a well and they take a nice big facebook cover photo and then they come back and uh, you know i think anytime i see manifestations of human goodwill that's a beautiful thing i'm glad to see people thinking altruistically and that's great whether they're being nice to a dog or being nice to anything that's i'm happy However, it's it seems to me such a scandal that right now in Canada, one of the wealthiest countries in the world, we have all of these Indian reservations where they don't have clean drinking water. They don't have proper waste disposal. And I think uh, I, I tend to be sort of parochial when it comes to I think you should take care of your family first before you take care of other people. You should take care of your neighborhood first before other your city. Right. And you should. Right. And so it's a scandal to me that Canada has communities that are living in these conditions right now. And I said, well, why don't you, you know, write to your MP, write to your, I mean, it's to say you're really upset about what's happening in Northern Ontario right now. I mean, yeah. Yeah. No, uh, uh, to be sure. And, um, uh, you know, it, go, it goes back a little bit. I just had a thought and it, 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 it escaped my mind. Yeah, uh, I, 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 I had a thought that just uh, that just um, just flew by uh, <laughs> on this about on this. the lack of trust and the two different. We should not participate with the Canadian system, or we should. I was going to uh, be, be instrumental and try the. I was going to be making a connection with um, with uh, with something else, but like no victim narratives and the various. No, yeah. no, no. I think with uh, going back to what you were saying about. Uh, the fact that we have within the, in the wealthiest country in the world, we have uh, communities where the life expectancy is, uh, you know, 30 years less than it is uh, for the rest of us. High rates of suicide, you know, basically living condition, living conditions that we wouldn't accept for, uh, you know, anybody in our in our um, in our community. You know, one of the things that um, this isn't what I was going to say, but but. Um, I'll say this anyway. Uh, one of the things that drives me to distraction, um, there's, oh, yes, yes, now I remember the connection. Mm. Um, you know, one of the big problems with, 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 with politics and with moving forward on things is um, um, making positive changes requires 
changes in people's lives. Uh, and, you know, it's one thing to, uh, we, we now live in a, in a regime where, where uh, this is starting to wear thin, I think, but for a couple of years, it looked like uh, he was going to be able to uh, basically ride into the sunset and get like majority government on majority government, <laughs> a prime minister of pure symbolism, right? Uh, who, who will cry, uh, you know, when, when apologizing <laughs> about whatever the, the, and, you know, show up at all the, at all the pride rallies. Um, and, you know, we just saw the India trip, uh, which yeah. was quite an embarrassment. Yeah. But when the rubber hits the road and, you know, you have to make changes. So, you know, um, if you really believe that the nature of the relationship between settler, the settler state and indigenous communities has to change fundamentally, right? Well, that means um, that you uh, accept that even if it hurts economically, even if you can't drill that pipeline, you know, through uh, indigenous land, uh, well, that's what we're going to have to do. You know, I wouldn't go to, you know, Belgium and presume to, you know, be able to drill a pipeline, you know, without their consent through, uh, you know, Flanders or something like that. Well, maybe we should start thinking of the way in which we uh, have um, despoiled the natural resources that we find on uh, land that, uh, that, ha that has been indigenous land uh, in, in something like the, the same way, and yet we don't. So uh, Trudeau has allowed us to have the best of all possible worlds. On the one hand, feel good about ourselves because we have a prime minister who um, cries at all the right moments and yeah. apologizes with what seems like real um, intensity, but he's not going to require that we change anything about our lives, right? He's not going to, uh, you know, agree to something with indigenous people with respect to their sovereignty over their land that is going to make the, the gas at the pumps uh, any more expensive. So, um, you know, I don't, it's I, funny because I heard a lot of the same things from my friends in the United States about Obama. They said, you know, Obama is gives beautiful, beautiful speeches and he shows all the right emotions at all the right times, but right. he doesn't actually change anything. You know, it's interesting uh, if going back to John Burroughs, you know, and so I, I was beginning to say when I forgot what I was going to talk about, I was going to begin to say, make another point, And then I remembered my point about, you know, we're not at the end of the day willing to um, uh, live by our ideals to the point where it actually hurts a little. Uh, I was going to make another point, which is with my... Um, inability to stomach anymore a kind of Canadian self-congratulation, yeah. right? That, um, you know, we're not the Americans and, uh, you know, look at how much more clever we are than they are and look at how much more uh, sort of solidaristic our society is than we don't have guns and stuff. You know, I mean, uh, some of that is true, but um, one of the one of the things that Burroughs, uh, John Burroughs, the, the legal scholar that I was talking about a minute ago, shows in, in his book is with respect to indigenous issues, even though there may not have been a politician you know, who has chosen to, to do the photo op thing in quite the same way that uh, our Justin uh, has. Um, you know, there are a range of issues where quietly, you know, without it necessarily making a splash, indigenous people in the states have it better with respect to their ability to, uh, you know, um, uh, exploit the exploit economic you know engage natural in resources, natural resources yeah. engage in, in economic activity more sovereignty um you know than than um indigenous folks in in canada are so um you know it may be true that obama was very good at uh, the symbolism and not so good at the at the reality but with respect to indigenous issues i think that um you know, even under Republican presidents, uh, and a lot of this is state by state, obviously, but, um, you know, th there, there's been much more under the radar, not necessarily trumpeted on the front pages progress uh, in the United States uh, than, there is, uh, than there is in Canada. Um, it's like Elizabeth May says that the most environmentalist 
prime minister of all time was Brian Mulroney, and the most environmentalist president in the United States was Richard Nixon. <laughs> this is just wacky, you know. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's so important to look below beneath the rhetoric. Uh, yeah, there's a, the most I'll never forget this. It was most vicious cartoon, I think, or one of the most vicious cartoons I've ever seen. It was I think it was Doonesbury and it was um, in the in the late 80s when I was a teenager. And it was you had like imagine there's two houses. There are the big, big houses in the suburbs and they've got like a four car garage and they're right next they're next door neighbors and there's a traveling traveling salesman who are selling political ideologies. Right. Right. And one guy has a briefcase that says conservatism. And the other one uh, has a briefcase that says liberalism. And so the conservative uh, says, you deserve everything you have because you're a good person and you work hard. Right. And the, uh, the salesman selling liberalism um, is giving his pitch. And the guy says to him, he says, look, I, you know, I like your ideas. I just I don't want to give up all my stuff. I, I, I'm happy with my position in society. And the guy says, oh, you must be mistaken. You don't have to give up anything you have. Right. You can have everything your neighbor has. You just have to feel bad about it. Right. <laughs> it's just like it was so I had it yeah. up on my wall when I, I mean, was a kid. And, and this goes back to, you know, connecting some of our some of our discussions. This goes back to, you know, I talked about some of the virtues of the kinds of moderate politics that our political system tends to generate. Now, nothing is perfect. You know, uh, uh, at the end of the day, as Isaiah Berlin uh, taught us, no social world without loss, right? Uh, yeah. Every political system uh, uh, has, has, a, has a downside. I think the downside of ours is that uh, moderation can sometimes take the form of just a cushy, complacent, uh, you know, status quo. Um, and I think that in Canada, uh, the ability to inject radical new ideas into the body politic is is lessened by um by the fact that uh, by the fact that uh we do have a tendency for our politics as the end at the end of the day to gravitate towards a kind of cushy mushy uh center um especially when uh as you say uh, we uh, we tend to be generating politicians who let us have our cake and eat it right uh, yeah Justin Trudeau, I mean, we'll see. The latest polls suggest that uh, something that was inconceivable only six months ago uh, seems to be happening, which is that, uh, you know, he may be a one-term uh, a one-term uh, prime minister. Um, feel good about ourselves because he looks good on the world stage, right? And <laughs> yes. uh, seems to be uh, saying all the right things. And, and on that basis, uh, ref- reflecting well on us, you know, for a while, while I was traveling for work, you know, around Europe and the United States, the first word on everybody's lips was, you guys are so lucky to have Justin. Yeah. I'd say, well, you I know, too. Yeah, all the time. <laughs> uh, there's a little bit less there than meets, uh, meets the eye. Um, Which is exactly what people were saying when Obama was in office. You know, we, we would go there. We had Harper. Yeah. And we we're saying, oh, you're so lucky that you have Obama. And then progressives in the states were like, well, well actually, in, he's drone bombing in, the in hell that, out of Pakistan. And, you know, you know, in, in defense of, of, of slight defense of Obama, although you're right that, uh, you know, the Obama record with respect to uh, foreign policy, the Obama record with respect to, uh, um, you know, even immigration, quite frankly, you know, we've been justly bemoaning Trump's uh, expulsions. But under Obama, it wasn't as if uh, there wasn't uh, ratcheting up of uh, actual on the ground uh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, yeah. expulsions from the United States. But in defense of, if you think about Obama and the American political system, the American political system uh, was built um, to achieve gridlock, 
right? Uh, you know, the, fa- the, 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 the founding yeah. fathers uh, were terrified um, of, well, they were terrified of what's happening right now. They're terrified that some uh, man, be a man of overweening ambition, would uh, manage to uh, turn the, po- the political system into a, a vehicle for his ambition and, uh, and uh, pride and ego. And so, uh, you know, the, poli- the president, in a sense, um, doesn't have much power vested in, in that office, right? Uh, requires the consent of, of Congress. And uh, we don't have, and Congress doesn't have the institution of um, party discipline that we have, right? Yeah. So, you know. I mean, uh, George W. Bush kind of tried to set it up. He did. You know. But think of Obama with healthcare, right? Yeah. Uh, the Obama plan uh, that ended up getting implemented was way, way watered down from what he had hoped for. And part of the reason was um, because of the blue dog Democrats, or were they blue dog? Yeah. Mm. Who uh, basically stood up to him in a, in a, you think, you know, here's a guy whose party has the majority of both houses. He can ram anything through? Well, no, he can't. So, uh, and that in the American system is a feature rather than a bug. Um, you know, for all of the... Um, uh, for all of the terror that Trump is uh, sort of generating when we read him, it may actually be something that has saved humanity, right? The fact that at the end of the day, for all of his blustering, you know, um, he actually hasn't been able to to do that much. In the case of the Canadian prime minister, you know, someone, some, some political scientist wrote that there is no more powerful position all purport, you know, in proportion uh, than a Canadian prime minister in a majority government because you have... Uh, well, it's like Sir Wilfrid Laurier said, you know, in his departing remarks, he said, were I not a gentleman, I could be dictator. That's right. right? You know, you have no real... Exe- you, you are the executive and the head of the legislature. Uh, you have party discipline, which means that you can impose, uh, you know, your will on your on your party. You can actually kick people out of the caucus if they uh, don't vote the party line on on issues that the party has decided are matters of party discipline. Um, and so, uh, you know, the potential for somebody who has progressive rhetoric like Trudeau to actually implement an agenda, I think, is greater than in the case of an American president. Um, and so to that degree, I think I'm looking at healthcare as the narrow case of, you know, the one signature piece of legislation that Obama really wanted to uh, leave power having achieved. Now, he did achieve something. But if you look at the original plan and look at what ended up going through Congress, it was uh, milk toast. Mm hmm compared to what he had hoped for. And that just has to do with the nature of the system. Um, it gives politicians perhaps a bit of an excuse. Look, I just couldn't do it because people within my own party were standing up to me. Is it a virtue? Is it a flaw? You know, that, uh, you know, I've, I've, I've written a, l- a little bit about this, about, uh, you know, one of the, you know, positive things that you can say about party discipline is it takes that excuse away from a politician, right? If <laughs> if you if you vote for Projet Montréal, right, mm-hmm. uh, on uh, because you've actually read their platform and listened to their interviews and and said, yeah, these guys are going to do something pretty radical to uh, tame cars in Montreal, um, you know, uh, and they have the power to do it, and then four years later they haven't done anything. Um, you don't want them to have the ability to say, well, you know, we really did want to, but look at all these checks and balances that have been put in place that got in the way of our of our doing it right uh there's a uh, there's a clean uh, there's something about the um there's a kind of clean moral relationship that this is what we're going to do you're giving us the power to do it and if we don't do it we don't really have an excuse come the next election time to say oh well the blue dog democrats got in our way Mm -hmm. now there are a lot of things about party discipline that are obviously you know uh um negative you know Mm -hmm. um but it is something which um, 
makes it the case that someone with progressive rhetoric like uh, Trudeau has less of an excuse when, um, you know, the reckoning comes four years later to say, uh, well, it was all rhetoric because really, you know, the institutions were lined up in such a way that I couldn't do anything else. Yeah. There- well, Laurier, Laurier said that whole line about, you know, if, if were I not a gentleman, uh, I could be dictator. One of the public scraps that you picked, I remember, was with Harper, where an instance where he was not acting like a gentleman. Right. Can you sort of just talk a little bit about yeah. that? Yeah. So this was, uh, this was uh, gosh, I can't even remember the year. So because there's so much power vested in the office of the prime minister in Canada, um, a lot of the restraint comes not from baked in, right, institutional checks and balances or from explicit rules, but from conventions, right? Yeah. Um, there is an understanding amongst gentle, <laughs> I guess, gentle, gentle men people. at the time, gentle <laughs> yeah. people, yeah. Uh, that certain powers will be used in the uh, public uh, interest rather than for partisan it's reasons. It's not codified. This is the way we do it. It's not codified. This is the way we do it. So one of the things that uh, the power that vests in the rests in the office of the of the prime minister is the ability to prorogue parliament. Basically to say, um, we're not suspending parliament. We are saying parliament is now uh, uh, no longer um, no longer sitting. We'll take a break. And this is this is different from the thing that you do when you dissolve parliament before an election. The idea here is essentially the government has kind of come to the end of its legislative agenda. It's done the things it said it would do, the things it hasn't been able to do probably won't be able to do, and it's time to, to re- reset, right? So you go away, you write a new throne speech, uh, set a new legislative agenda, and then you call parliament and you have a new uh, speech from the throne or something. Uh, but the idea is that you don't, you, um, you do it when you have a good faith belief as prime minister, your cabinet has a good faith belief that uh, really this is what parliament needs in order to be able to move forward usefully uh, between elections. Um, now, uh, in in his minority, when he had a minority government, uh, Harper was facing uh, the possibility of a no confidence motion uh, before Parliament uh, that would have been spearheaded by an unholy alliance of uh, New Democrats <laughs> under Jack Layton, uh, liberals under Stéphane Dion, and um, the support, though not the active alliance, the support of the Bloc Québécois yeah. under Gilles Duceppe. Um, and at that point, not because there was any belief that uh, it was needed. Uh, the government had actually just started uh, its its legislative agenda. Harper calculated that if he prorogued parliament for a few weeks or months, that unholy coalition would come to a realization that it was unholy, would unravel, and he'd then be able to continue uh, governing. Um, and that's what he did. Uh, he actually did it twice uh, in two slightly different sets of circumstances. And um, um, uh, actually was right uh, in the first case. Uh, he, he, uh, the, the Liberal Party was, uh, the, there was an internal insurrection. Uh, Michael Ignatiev took over, the coalition um, fell apart, and there was no, no confidence vote. The idea was that, um, you know, this is a dangerous precedent, that uh, the power to prorogue is something that is actually, when you think about it, quite huge, right? You say for the next few weeks, parliament, the house of the people, will no longer be sitting while we, the government, retool our uh, legislative agenda. You really want to do that, A, with parsimoniously, and B, um, in a non-tactical, non-partisan way. So uh, I wrote a letter, uh, I remember it was, and he did it just before Christmas, I think, when he knew that people were starting to no longer pay attention. I remember sitting in my pajamas on the couch and saying, <laughs> you know, I'm really pissed off. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I wrote this thing uh, saying, um, 
this isn't right, and it's not just right as a matter of, of ethics. It's also not right as a matter of constitutional law, given that so much of our Constitution is unwritten, is conventional. Um, sent it around to a couple of... It was my, a real, like, jacuzzi. It was like... It yeah. Was, like, it yeah. was great. I sent it around to a couple of colleagues uh, who uh, both made some suggestions about changes, but then said, you know, if you're going to send this out, do you mind if I added my name to it? Uh, before long, it had hundreds of signatures on it um, from constitutional scholars and uh, uh, political scientists and philosophers from around the country. Um, actually got me onto, uh, um, what's his name, Solomon, uh, uh, Power and Politics. Oh, right. <laughs> the thought that I would ever be uh, interviewed on Power and Politics. Yeah. Um, uh, so somebody told me that this that this was quite a significant thing because uh, Harper actually dispatched one of his ministers uh, on the news to say, well, this isn't of any interest to Canadians who really are just interested at the end of the day with their pocketbooks. All these things about prorogation are, uh, um, you know, just academics just and journalists. Just urban elites. Just and the- urban <laughs> elites. Uh, you know, I was told, look, don't worry about it. For him to have dispatched... A minister to talk about this means that he actually was a little bit worried about it. But it goes back to a point that we were making at the very beginning, which is that, uh, you know, it's hard to get people excited about something as arcane as prorogation, right? It's uh, <laughs> yeah. it's not like, um, it, it doesn't resonate. It's not yeah. sexy, right? No, it's uh, not. Is that a Polish, you know, dumpling kind yeah. of thing? Uh, <laughs> uh, you know, people, and, and yet, you know, and, and this goes back in a way, uh, so much of our ability to withstand um tyranny is a strong word, but the abuse of authority, the abuse of power such as that, or to to withstand, um, you know, the, 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 the winds of populism depend not so much on our ability to make the right philosophical arguments, right, but on um, our institutions working in the right way. And sometimes at these little pressure points that nobody really notices until they give way. Um, I think it's a really interesting uh, case of, of, of that, right? That, uh, you know, here is this convention that we didn't notice until now because by and large, everybody was sort of sticking by it. You don't notice something yeah. until it breaks. And it's a terrible precedent for uh, prime ministers to use that power in a partisan tactical way. Yeah, it's funny. You and Martha Nussbaum both started off in philosophy departments, and yet you ended up in law schools. Yeah. Right now, a generation ago, this would have been seen as very, very bizarre. Yeah. But it's it's become more and more the norm. Top law schools are hiring philosophers and yeah. putting. What is going on there? What what explains the sea change? So so law is you know, and I think that uh, I think especially a, a faculty like McGill that does view itself not just as a training ground for future lawyers, but as a as an academic, you know, pl- place of, for the deep academic study of the law. Every single one of my colleagues has a, a very significant research agenda going on. You know, law is really, in a way, applied philosophy. Um, there isn't, let's put it this way, when I was in a philosophy department, I was in a great philosophy department at the University of Montreal, 25 colleagues who were all just absolutely expert in their field. There were a lot of people that I respected their work, admired what they did, very difficult for me to have a, a conversation with them uh, because I just didn't know anything about what they were doing, right? Uh, the logician, the, the really formal logic guy had more conversations with his colleagues in math or computer, computer science, science yeah, yeah. Uh, than, than, than I could have with, with them. Uh, you know, the, a lot of historians who are really just really down in the weeds of the archives yeah. doing work that is probably closer to what somebody would be doing in a history department. Yeah, it's history of philosophy history, more than philosophy, yeah. yeah. 
whereas in law, you know, uh, the person doing criminal law is thinking about, um, you know, responsibility, is thinking about punishment, is thinking about uh, things like, you know, think about the notion of, um, of the burden of proof. Think about the idea of beyond a reasonable doubt. That is some... <laughs> it's, you know, any, it's you know at least as intense as the free will problem. You don't yeah. have to you don't have to dig to find philosophy, right? It's it's right there on the surface, right? Uh, think about taxation. I taught a seminar on taxation with one of the leading um, tax uh, legal scholars in Canada, Alison Christians, uh, because what is what is taxation? It's about how to achieve distributive justice, right? It's about how what tools to use in order to uh, redistribute the fruits of social cooperation in a just way and without generating too many um, perverse consequences. So do we tax, uh, what do we tax? Do we tax consumption? Do we tax uh, uh, income? Do we tax um, uh, capital as Thomas Piketty would, would, would have us do? How do we balance those things out? You know, again, that's uh, that's philosophy. Constitutional law is really just political philosophy, you know, made um, into an actual working uh, instrument. So property, you know, I mean, uh, I, we could go on and on and yeah, no, on. I, I agree with you 100%. So, I'm just curious why the law schools figured this out. Well, I think I think that I mean there's a, there's a human all too human reason, and then there's a substantive reason. The substantive reason I think is the one I've given, which is the realization that um, you know there's just a lot of philosophy in the law. I think there's also at a certain point a uh, kind of a you know as, as their ac academic uh, trends uh, that make it the case that once one place does it, it becomes costly for and it works out right. Yeah. Uh, it becomes it becomes something that people are attracted to. It becomes difficult for other places not to do it right. So uh, um, I think that there there may also be something on the order of of that going on. But you know, Canada has. Uh, has uh, you know, University of Toronto, I think, probably was was first off the mark in uh, realizing that philosophy and law had a natural bond, and uh, there are two or three colleagues there who uh, have joint appointments. Um, so uh, you know, I I, I, th I think there's a little bit of a little bit of both. Um, I'm presently I'm, I'm just months away from becoming the president of the Canadian Philosophical Association. Oh, wow. and, congratulations! Uh, yeah, or yeah. <laughs> One of the things you know, the thing that I've made central to my year as president is um, trying to um, both make philosophers, but also uh, other institutions within the academy, outside the academy, of um, you know the virtues of training in philosophy as uh, you know as a, as a as something that isn't just you know symbolically good or something that makes you feel good about yourself. But look, you know, we live in a world where. Um, the expertise that is needed uh, in 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 the in the economy changes so quickly that it's almost pointless, right? To um, uh, to say, okay, we need fourteen of people with that particular BA or MA, yeah. Because once you've trained them, by the time they've finished their training, the train has moved, you know, five stations yeah. down. Um, you know, it's a almost triviality or banality to say, but I think philosophy is. Um, makes people philosophically or intellectually agile when it's well done, when it's well taught, uh, in ways that I think uh, the modern economy requires more and more of. So law schools may have been first to, to realize this, but you know, we're, we're uh, the, you can't shake a stick around my uh, university these days, around universities, uh, without coming up against somebody worrying about AI. Artificial intelligence, <laughs> right? Uh, yes. Programmable cars and, and whatnot. Or an AI lawyers, right? That would 
have at AI, their fingertips every precedent. AI could, lawyers, AI diagnosticians yeah. uh, in, in, in medicine. Um, you know, um, five years ago, right, this was something that we read in Wired maybe. You know, like yeah. there were just a small number of people who were thinking about AI and it was like, you know, sci-fi movies, uh, you know, Ex Machina or something like yeah. that. And now we have, uh, you know, like, sex robots and uh, <laughs> and uh, driverless cars like around the corner, literally yep. around the corner. Um, so obviously there are philosophical issues there. You know, uh, the, the we actually now have to think about how to program a car uh, to make choices uh, that about what to do, including what to do with its driver if it comes up against a situation where it's the driver or five people out there yeah. who are going to get, you know, so there, it's wild. like Absolutely all those wild. crazy sci-fi cases that we taught our students uh, about are coming uh, to the fore. But again, it just shows how quickly things move, right? Yeah. And uh, I think that a certain amount of uh, intellectual agility is, um, uh, if I were, you know, um, a multi-billionaire running a big corporation like Google, or uh, you know, I'd want to, I'd want to, and probably they are hire a lot of philosophers rather than you know engineers whose expertise is going to be uh, well. I'd want engineers too, but uh, you know, uh, I think you want the big thinkers as well. Yeah, it's interesting. I was mentioning to you before about Neil Ferguson's whole idea of right the the tower in the square, and that uh, the conflict between networks between networks and hierarchies, right? And how he says that right now our situation is very much analogous to, right, the, the 16th century that, right, he says you would you would not have had Martin Luther without the printing press. And he says you would not have Trump without Facebook. Right. And he says, so what's happening right now is uh, th these networks are so extensive and powerful that they can take down hierarchies, which yeah. is what happened in this. And so I'm wondering... And so there's kind of a crisis of authority happening right now. And so, the, you know, the name of this podcast, Like Phil, is to some extent based on that, right? So you had the Internet, the people who created the Internet, they were um, almost to a man. They were left-leaning liberals, urban liberals. And they thought, and they didn't just think, they said explicitly that they thought the Internet was going to bring the world closer together and it was going to bring the true gospel of liberal values to these benighted small towns. They had a sort of mythological small town, which I, I've dubbed Sameville, where everybody's sort of white and wrong. And they thought, we're going to actually bring the light of enlightenment to this place. But what they didn't anticipate, you know, once we're talking about unintended consequences, right? what they didn't realize was that actually they created a new kind of virtual reality small town, this thing called Likeville, right. which is uh, the evil twin of Sameville or Doppelganger, you might say. And that's that it now, these days, anybody who has a crazy conspiracy theory, has some sort of wacky idea, you can find an online community of sure. people who believe what you believe. And this, what this, it has an amplifi amplifying effect. So you get you become a member of this community and they have all these prefab arguments and stats and, you know, factoids. Yeah. And so now what was just kind of a, a single issue whack job becomes a, a sort of a veritable uh, Swiss army knife of bullshit, right? Like they've, they've got, you know, all this, they've been yeah. empowered. Right. And I've, you know, I, we were talking about this before. I've seen people who are struggling with, with mental health problems, especially psychosis and anxiety, 
if you're feeling scared about things, you can find a group of people that'll make you way more scared. Sure. Right. Whether you're afraid of vaccinations, whether sure. you're afraid. So that seems to me that it makes the whole job right. Because Neil Ferguson's point is that we have this idea that somehow the printing press just made it possible to spread lots of good ideas, which brought down the Catholic Church. And but he says, you know, actually the witch burning craze happened because of the printing press. The printing press created the witch burning craze as well as spread the Protestant. So he says bad ideas spread through networks just as rapidly as good ideas, right? yeah. which we're living through right now. Yeah. Right. So what do you think? Well, I definitely, uh, you know, I, I, uh, I definitely um, recognize the the danger. I think somebody's going to have to do a really good, and maybe this is being done. There's there's work here for uh, a historian um, to think precisely about these issues. How much of a watershed has the internet been in terms of? Um, you know, has it changed the game completely in that respect? You're absolutely right that there was this utopian hope, right? That uh, that it would be that 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 the internet could be an agora, you know, a place where we could all meet virtually despite our great you know distances and and differences and uh, as you know, equals as equals. Yeah, and you know, Cass Sunstein has written. Just you know, I think three books now: uh, Republic 2.0 uh, on how we've gone from the idea of the agora to the echo chamber, where the algorithms are basically making it the case that we're just sort of without even trying, right? We don't even have to go looking for them; they come to us, right? The mm -hmm. people who are like us come. Um, so you know, um, I, I, I'm someone who who still believes in the importance of things like newspapers and uh, current events. The, the, old style uh, sort of, you know, places, the op-ed pages of, uh, <laughs> of, 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 I think one of the great losses is the city newspaper, right? The newspaper, which isn't like a national newspaper like the New York Times, the Globe and Mail, but something that speaks, that allows a community to speak to uh, one another. Um, uh, and, you know, I think in the United States, I can't remember what the number is, but the number of city newspapers that, you know, disappeared is, is it's just vertiginous. Um, and the ones that have remained, if you look at Canada, uh, you know, the Montreal Gazette basically gets 80% of its content from uh, sort of national. It's the same thing as the Ottawa Citizen. It's yeah. the same thing as the, you know, Calgary Herald. It's all... Uh, it's all basically coming from the same place. Well, you could see that when the the election, when they all came oh, out right, for Harper, right. you know, front page. I mean, that was just so what, a, like, just so clearly showing which side of the bread right. there is buttered on, right? You like, know, so I, th I think that that's something that you know the internet hasn't yet been able to replicate. This kind of thing, where even if the paper has an editorial line, you know, by and large, um, still you have different columnists. You know, you have the left wing columnist and the right wing columnist. Uh, you know, and people will. Everybody reads the same paper because there's only a couple of papers, right? Uh, think about the pre-internet ages. You know, if uh, if somebody wrote a, a, an inflammatory op-ed, people would be arguing about it around the the coffee table. Not that long ago. Uh, whereas now we don't read the same the same things, right? So how can we? You know, I talked about algorithms. You know. Things can get tweaked. I, I read something about a woman who had invented a fairly simple app that you can put on your your phone that rather than connecting you with someone who's ideologically uh, simpatico with you, will put you in just random sort of like Tinder for ideological <laughs> opponents. Um, I heard about this on Sam Harris's podcast. He had Cass Sunstein on. Yeah, yeah, sure. And he mentioned that app. Yeah, he said yeah. it's uh, it it specifically like puts you in touch with. Um, 
sort of viewpoints that you wouldn't be likely to find in your little sort of informational that's right. ecosystem. That's right. So, I mean, that's obviously that's a, that's a very small scale, uh, small scale thing. I mean, the thing that's frustrating is that the potential is there, right? I mean, just think of how much time we spend on the internet. Just think about how much stuff is is out there. Uh, I mean, you know, the amount of information. I remember my son once saying something when he was young. Um, you know, um, I don't know. We were wondering. I was. We were wondering about whether some actor or actress had been in a movie, or who the actor had been in such and such a movie. And he said, and I quote it, stuck with me all these years. Dad, why do you ever wonder about anything? You know, you have an iPhone. Uh, <laughs> And he was right, of course, right? I have, you know, the, the whole of human knowledge is there in my, in my, in my pocket. Now, you know, the, the, thing, that, the thing that's frustrating is, um, you know, when t- talking about newspapers, I sound like some old, I, I am very much a kind of a technological determinist, by the way. I do believe that, uh, you know, we have the to- medium is the message. The media, we have yeah. to find a way of harnessing this technology rather than hoping for a day where it doesn't going exist. Back, yeah. Or go, certainly going back, right, is, is just not going to happen. So how do we change, uh, you know, this huge potential in ways that, uh, again, maybe realize not not the enlightenment thing of, of uh, you know, enlightening the benighted masses, but creating um, uh, a space where people can sort of come uh, can can come into contact with different views. I'm not sure. Uh, I'm not sure. Uh, it's, uh, it's 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 but I think that that's 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 a huge challenge uh, because. We're going to be, look, you know, going back to one of the things that I mentioned before, um, some people have been starting to, I talked about how cities are potentially toxic for people's mental health because of the vast multitudes that are out there that you don't know, but you're kind of aware of them, right? You're kind of aware of them looking at you and... and somebody has been writing, I can't remember the name of the the scholar, it's, it's gotten some legs, the idea that in a sense, the internet has a kind of function in people's lives. It's almost like a city. It is a place where we live right increasingly and where we are surrounded by you know just multitudes of uh, nameless faceless strangers who we vaguely sort of know are kind of observing us yeah. and looking at it's us it's funny cuz when you were saying that i i immediately thought about you know this is obviously years ago uh, but i being in amsterdam once and i took these really powerful magic mushrooms and I started to feel, you know, one of the one of the very common side effects of any kind of psychedelic, uh, whether it be acid or mushrooms or even weed, if you smoke a lot of it, is uh, a kind of paranoia, right? awareness of like paranoia. Yeah. And I remember very clearly walking around the city with with Annalisa, and I felt like everybody was staring at me, <laughs> and I felt like that kind of. Every look, it's almost like that, you know, that Doris song, right? People are strange when you're a stranger. Faces look ugly when you're alone. Like, so I, I had that kind of feeling. And I remember describing this to uh, to my cousin when I got back. And my cousin had uh, struggled with schizophrenic. He was uh, uh, he lived with it for his whole life. He died recently. But uh, anyway, I mentioned this to him and he said, that's what I feel like. All the time. All the time. Right. Like unless like if unless my medications like working really, really well, he goes, I walk around. I feel like people are staring me yeah. all the time when in fact they're probably just making a, a funny face for no reason. It's not at me, but I feel that. And so it's it it very much rings true to me what you're saying about how people who have a tendency for one reason or another to uh, deal with psychosis, it would be much more 
intense in a city. Yeah. Anyway, do you have any uh, sort of closing remarks? I don't know, except to say it's a wonderful opportunity to have this kind of yeah. uh, long form, uh, long form uh, sort of uh, great, to, great to chat. And I hope that uh, you know other people listening to this have as much fun listening to it as I had participating in it. <laughs> All right. Uh, so uh, yeah, no, great. Thanks, thanks for the opportunity, and uh, it was a lot of fun. All right, me too. Thank you very much for coming. Pleasure. <laughs> Bye. Hope you enjoyed uh, this episode of the Like Phil podcast. Please be sure to like our podcast on iTunes and leave any comments if you have any. And also, if you'd like to support this effort, please go to our uh, Patreon account and contribute to Like Phil. All right. Have a good day.